0: podcast with Steve Mathis. Educated, now. With now.
1: Welcome to the Pulp MX podcast show. I'm your host Steve Mathis and uh, this podcast is uh, it's about me. So um, that's a little switch I guess. With me on the line is uh, is a guy uh, from Baltimore named John who goes on Twitter as a Gavin MX. John, what's up,
0: Steve? What's going on? I'm I'm doing good. I'm uh, happy you sat down with me to do this podcast. Uh, like I said, I met you at Buds, and I had an idea to do a podcast of your career. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I I know that, that everyone knows your career kind of in a in a mixed and match way, like like in a Pulp Fiction kind of way, and. I thought it would be good to put it all in order and uh, make sense of the whole story.
1: Yeah, like to me, everybody, it's like me doing, I've never done a podcast with Tim Ferry uh, about his career because we did one once, the sound quality wasn't very good, and it sucked because I already knew everything about him. So I didn't feel like um, anybody would be interested, you know? And I kind of feel the same way about my podcast. It's like there's a lot to, you know, there's a lot to uh, to know about uh, me, but I, I've talked so much and I've written so much that I feel like it's it's not necessary, but you you hounded me. You kept on me, so congratulations.
0: Well, well, thanks. I mean, look, people like this show, people like you most of all, so I think that your hardcore fans, the people that just listen to Paul Max, not only for the information, but just because they like you as a guy, uh, want to know more stuff about you. I think probably one of the most common questions you get from people is what, how do you get a, a, a motocross industry job and, and stuff like that. And I'm sure you probably get tired of answering that question or can't think of anything original. So this is, I thought this would answer a lot of questions for those people and just people that want to know more about you because you've been around in what I consider the golden era of, of motocross. That's just because I'm 27 years old, so I'm the not. '90s was, you know, the time I, I listened or I, I watched, but. Uh, I think you got a lot of answers for people that want to know more of the inside stuff
1: um yeah actually funny you say that uh two emails in the last two days about how people one guy has a degree uh in something and wants to get in in the industry and the other guy just wants to be a media guy so that's funny you say that two in the last two days I get right. it a lot
0: <laughs> right well uh yeah like you said though. I mean you thought this might have been a bad idea but uh I, I trolled Twitter and asked people for uh questions that they might have uh-huh. and uh I've got uh, tons and tons of replies, two two total. Uh, yeah. Moser and O'Rourke were the only people that had questions, um, but right. uh, you know it's okay.
1: <laughs> well, how, how many followers do you have?
0: How many? I got like uh, almost eighty, but you know, yeah. it, most of them are like spam anyways. So. It's tough
1: to get follow, get uh, a lot of feedback when you have eighty followers. I have six thousand. 500 and I can't even get feedback, you know. So.
0: Well, thanks for being so humble about uh, it. I uh, appreciate that.
1: Uh but uh, uh all right, let's uh let's get going. What uh what do you want to know? What do you want me hey. to talk to you about?
0: Well, uh like I said, people like you, people like the show, i mean, are you are you starting to get noticed around more frequently than you used to or are you are you getting noticed on the street kissing babies and things like
1: that? Uh no. No, definitely not. Uh um nothing. You know, locally here in Vegas. When I go to the races, it's it's kind of cool. Like every couple every every weekend's a few people, pictures and stuff, and people telling me how they love the show. And the show's uh, um, uh, catching on. It's really catching on. I'm really surprised, actually, how good it's going. To be honest, um, right?
0: I mean, is it weird having fans? Does it, does it get uncomfortable? I mean, you got you got people calling your house at all hours. They want to come over and watch the show, and you don't do a background check on them. And uh they might be I know.
1: I know, huh? They could come over and uh and I won't even have time to set the rape code.
0: Right. And yeah. and you seem, you know, pretty humble enough to let them over. I mean, half the time I listen to the show and I'm like, Why is he entertaining this guy? And you're like, Yeah, hey, give him my address, let him come on over. I mean, when yeah. I met you at Buds, you gave him your phone number. You don't know who you don't know who the hell I am. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I thought, I thought you were a pretty down-to-earth guy to, to be like that. So does it get uncomfortable for you or, or what?
1: No, no. Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, I, I really don't think I'm anything special, to be honest. I don't think I'm that good of a writer. Um, I have this little uh, niche that I made with podcasting, but I'm not that good at that because I keep getting told that I say, yeah, no, um, over and over. So, you know, I just I don't have an ego. And, and one thing that bugs me about the industry is there's a lot of people who have egos. And it just bugs the shit out of me, whether it's a media guy or a writer or a mechanic or whatever. It's like we're not, we're not curing cancer. We're not doing the, uh, um, you know, we're not splitting atoms here. So I, I don't have much of an ego. I don't have a whole lot of confidence. I, I mean, I, obviously, um, I'm making a living at it and it's super cool and people like what I do. But I always feel like... uh uh my stuff could be better, and I guess that's, that's why I think, I mean, I don't put myself above anybody, like, whatever. Like, I gave you my phone number, but, you know, it doesn't mean I gotta answer it if you keep calling me all the time.
0: Well, I, you know, I try to keep it to a minimum <laughs> after 3 o'clock right,
1: right. in the morning. Right, right, and, 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 and uh, you know, I mean, so, like, whatever, giving my phone number out is no big deal. I've had the same number since 1997, so a lot of people have it, so, whatever, right, whatever.
0: There's no way I'm giving my phone number to my neighbor or to oh, okay. some random dude on the well, street. Dude, you but li- again, you live in
1: Baltimore. So. I do live in Baltimore. Yeah, so. exactly. no, exactly. Right. So, uh, but no, it, it's cool, man. The show's going well. The podcasts are doing well. Um, you know, uh, the show's making money, which is good. I'm able to pay everybody. I'm able to to uh, pay myself and uh, and pay uh, Swisscore and pay Greg McQuarrie and and like um, yeah. So it's good. I'm pumped on it, you know, and people seem to really like it. It's, we've hit on something. So whatever that is, I don't know, but we've hit on something.
0: Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I have listened from day one, and at first I was like, why is he doing this? He does his writing thing. DMXS has their deal, you know, but it, it's totally different, and it makes sense, and I listen to them both. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely works out. Uh, let's, let's, go back to, uh, let's go back to the beginning with you. Yeah. There was a time in, in, in age when you didn't know what motocross was. How did you find motocross? Did it find you? Was your dad a racer and he brought you into it? Or did your you and your brothers begging for dirt bikes and mm. begged to race? how that happen? Yeah, I
1: don't, I, the first thing I remember, my brother's three years older than me, so the first thing I remember is just uh being told that I'm going to ride a dirt bike. You know what I mean? My dad my dad never raced, but he, he rode off road and he had rode street bikes and my brother really got into motocross and from you know like I said the first memory I have is being super young and just my dad saying okay we're going to go riding here here's your bike indian 50 automatic um you know there's your bike go ride it so uh and then for for the first few years i remember not really being into it. i raced bmx a little bit when i was a kid and dirt bikes were like ah whatever you know what i mean it wasn't like the end all and be all for me and my brother was the gnarly one who loved it and was super passionate about it, but then uh, you know, as I got to be eight, nine, 10 years old, I started getting more into it, and then, uh, then we were a full-on family going to the races and racing every weekend.
0: Right. so, so your dad, uh, he was a mini-dad. What's your best all-time mini-dad story? Um, well, I know that. I know he kept you on an 80 too long. Oh, yeah he did.: and, he did. Uh, We were oh yeah, chasing I see we're... your biffy helmets. We were but, chasing uh, what, what's your best
1: story? We were chasing the elusive Manitoba ADCC title and it it, it we could never get it. We lost it by two points one year. Um Yeah, he I mean he he was hard on me for sure. Him and my brother, he he was really hard on my brother. He would uh they would get into lots, lots of fights about racing and this and that my brother. My dad was pretty gnarly. Uh he got better with me. My brother quit when he was like 16, 17 and he was better with me. He learned his lesson a little bit, but he still was was gnarly like um if I did well in the race and I got back to the van there be he'd be there with water for me and, and to take my bike and put it on the stand and everything and if I didn't do well he literally would have to go for a walk in the woods for a while to calm down um you know so he learned to just not come up to me right away and confront me right away he learned that from my brother so um he was all right with me but you know he was just dedicated man like i remember showing up at a local race it had poured the night before. I was racing three bikes, and it was super hot. And I remember that dude changing six tires and six spro- and, and three sprockets for the mud. And then I went out and practice. track dried up, and he changed six tires and three sprockets back for the new track conditions on all three dirt bikes. And just sweating like a stuck pig, and, like, it was super hot. And I just remember thinking to myself, this guy's gnarly. Like – I don't really. I can run with mud tires, Dad. You know what I mean. But he just wanted me to have the the best uh, setup for, for for the track. So uh, he was gnarly, no doubt about it.
0: Right. So then he does all that. You come back. You think you did good, and you go, "Where's Dad? Uh, he's in the woods." Yeah, he's in the oh, woods. I, I guess I um, didn't do so good. Right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, I won. I won a lot as a local amateur guy in the '80s, and and, 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 C, and in in and Canada, you got to go to C class. You can You don't go to B class like in the states or down here so you know through c class and b class i won a lot so basically if i didn't win that's when he wouldn't come back you know um but uh yeah as we all know four manitoba titles
0: right so (laughs) was was the was the blair morgan race the uh the highlight of your creation career your racing career Uh, other than the uh no
1: no because when i was i beat blair quite a bit he's uh one or two years younger than me, and I used to travel over to Saskatchewan, the next province, where he raced. And I would beat him a lot. I'd race there two or three times in the spring, and then i raced some the marina crosses in the big cities, like halftime show, you know. And uh, I would beat him all, all the time, so it was really no big deal to beat him. And then all of a sudden, I went, I went back to Blair's home province as a B-rider, I think. And he got really fast over one winner. (laughs) And I don't think I ever saw him that day. And I was like, oh, shit, like, this dude got fast. But so, yeah, beating him that day, like, on that videotape that I have. And how awesome is that, that uh, Darcy Lawrence – man, I hope I didn't get his name wrong. I think it's Darcy Lawrence uh, got me that videotape because that thing has provided me with – me and many others with many laughs. But
0: no, it it wasn't a huge deal to beat him. Well, like you said, you got it on tape, and that's that's really all you need, you know <clears throat> so anyway um yeah,
1: yeah. so, so
0: you were you're a pretty typical amateur, I mean, it looks like you had lots of random brands of bikes, yeah. you ran lots of stickers, even if you right. didn't have the sponsorship absolutely yeah, um, I'm sure you ran into issues with your dad being cheap. I know I did uh, No, you my, had a, no, you my probably dad had a pipe dream of being a pro like like most of us did, so what what was the squirreliest thing that you probably? did or, or, you know, came across with you and your dad racing?
1: No, I mean, my dad was not cheap at all. He, he, if anything, he was gnarly. Like, it was just, like, anything I needed. Like, we we had, like, the R- Loretta Lins of Canada, you know, the Amateur National Championships in Toronto, outside of Toronto, which is a 24-hour drive. My dad found out there was a local race on this track three weeks before the Loretta Lins race. So we drove... 24 hours straight to this track, raced it, packed up, went from there up to Quebec, another 15 hours, raced uh, the next weekend at a little mini-stade race, and then drove back down to the Loretta Linz track, only to find out they leveled it and built almost a brand new one for the for the national. So like it never it never benefited me. I, I spent winters. I spent uh, the winter of 89 for, for a month. I spent the winter of 88. No. The winter of 89, the winter of 90, the winter of 91 in California or Florida. And by winter, I mean one or two months riding. And meant much of that was spent on my dad's dime. Um, so, you know, I there was no expenses spared to, to make... Make me the next uh, uh, Ricky Johnson. So, right, uh, that yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't work out. Obviously, uh, him and my mom got divorced when I was like eighteen, and all the money went away. And I, I wasn't gonna at that point. You already know I I got hurt a whole bunch, and I wasn't that fast anyways. Um, and I wasn't gonna make it. So it was just another dream dashed for you know, just like so many other kids. Right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. I mean, we're talking Canadian motocross too, not even American motocross. Just crappy ass Canadian motocross. So.
0: Right. Well, and that leads into my next question. I was going to say at some point you had to make a choice as most most amateurs do. Are you going to keep chasing this pipe dream or are you going to go and try to find a motocross job or are you just going to say I'm done with this and get a real job? So I was going to ask you how how did that come about? So uh, you said you got injured a lot.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, I guess. Uh, um I'd gotten hurt parent dad divorced uh Dad divorced. Uh, money was gone. I was racing locally, expert, you know, pro expert, uh, not winning. So that should have been my first tip off. It wasn't going to work, you know. Um, I raced some. Uh, uh, I raced some Canadian nationals. I raced some U.S. nationals in, uh, down at Millville. Um, and it just never. I just. I, I, I tore my rotator cuff. Then I tore my knee. Then I broke my arm. Then I did something else. So, like, in the span of, like, three summers in a row, I barely rode, and then I had no money, and so uh, I was basically done, you know, I was like, hey, this is not, this is not going to happen. I was working a a job that was uh, four days a week, three in the afternoon to, like, two in the morning at a steel shop, and basically having no life, I don't think I even had a bike at that point. And I was like, man, this is not the way to go. Oh, and then my mom and dad had to sell the house for the divorce. And my mom, my brother was out already. You know, he had sort of a career going, if you want to call it that. I had nothing going on. So my mom moved in with her mom, my grandma, and I had to follow. And I'm living with my grandma, who, you know, was an alcoholic and yelling at me. And I basically didn't have any life working at the steel shop. My mom was, you know, struggling to put her life together as a you know, forty something year old divorced woman, and I was just like, "Hey, this is really shitty. This is not not what I want to do." But in the meantime, uh, a friend of mine named Daryl Hill and Shane Drew, um, who who's still around today and a, is a friend of mine, they had gotten jobs in the in the in the states working on, uh, for different riders. Daryl was working for Tony Amuradio as his mechanic, and Shane Drew was working for Nolene. And I went to Millville not even racing anymore, just went down to hang out, and I hung out with those guys for a weekend, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I, I, I want to travel. You know, I'm still a fan. I'm still a, a super fan. You know, I'm reading all the magazines. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to be what these guys are doing. You know, at the time, it, their deal looked pretty sweet. Now, now looking back, it was cheese ball because, you know, you talk right. to those guys, but that's what I want to do. So then I started thinking, well, I want to be a mechanic. Down in the USA. That was right. That was just, I had to do it. I just really wanted to do it.
0: Right. And, and, and that was 96, correct?
1: Yeah, 95 was when I started trying to do it a little bit. 96 was uh, Shane Drew was working for Kyle Lewis, and I was still doing the machine shop. Oh, no, you know what? I'd gotten laid off um, from the machine shop, so I couldn't even keep that shitty job. Uh, my grandma was yelling at me. Um, well, and
0: you, well, when did you have this, the, the bike shop, right? I, yeah. Steve I, Cycle. Yeah, I had my, Where was
1: that at? That was uh, Steve Cycle, was uh, a three year thing from 91, 92, and 93. I was 16, 17, 18 years old, and uh, I had this shop, a little aftermarket accessory shop. But once my dad devo- decided that he didn't want anything to do with sort of myself or my mom or anything, all the funding sort of went away. We were partners in it, I guess you'd say. I was working it; he was doing the the service work and you know keeping the shop alive. But once he split, the sales just weren't there. Like I think I grossed, yeah, I I gross fifty or sixty thousand, you know, each year I was there. That's gross, you know. So it was just a small shop. It wasn't it wasn't doing much. Um So that by the time I wanted to be a, a mechanic, that the shop was long gone and I was in debt. I was. I don't know, I was uh, seven, 18 years old and like $20,000 in debt So, from this shop that I tried to keep going after my dad split. Um, mm-hmm. So I just realized that I wanted to be a mechanic, and this was 96. I had been laid off from my steel job where I was grinding, boy. Um, and I just called Shane Drew and said, hey, w- what do I got to do? What, what, what? I want to do what you do. And he was like, well, he's like, first of all, there's nobody that's going to hire you if you just sit on your couch in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It's just not going to happen. He's like, you got to come down here and meet people. And that's really the advice I give people to this day is uh, I was told a long time ago no one's going to pick up the phone and just call me in Winnipeg, Canada to hire me. So, you know, you got to network. It's who you know. It's, it's how much you want to sacrifice. And, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, so I took my last – and my buddy, not really my buddy, just a guy I knew, uh, Jan Vitesnick, he was driving to Denver Supercross in 96 to go watch. And I took my last $300, and I said, hey, can I catch a ride? And I I arranged it with Drew, where I was going to uh, hang out with him for like two or three weeks. So that was it, man. I was, you know, I left home telling my mom, hey, I'm going to, I may be back in three weeks. I'm just... I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <coughs> so we'll see you. Right. See you in three weeks, or or whatever, you know. And um, and then
0: you never came back.
1: <laughs> yeah, literally, seriously, yeah, that was it. I mean, obviously, I went back, but not um, not with my tail between my legs. You know, I, I'd gotten, I'd figured it out. So <clears throat> I show up at um, High Point, 1996, and I go around the pits. Shane introduces me to some people. I try to meet some people. I go around. <laughs> I managed to get a job for the day only, just the, just the Sunday, working for Jason McCormick, um, the Washougal guy, Washington State guy. <laughs> Excuse me. And right. uh, for
0: and, for a hundred bucks, and, right?
1: Yeah, a hundred bucks, and he went like fourteen, fourteen on the day, and I was hooked. You know, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do this. You know what I mean? It's the next best thing to racing, and you know, there I am on the on the line with Steve Lampson and Wyndham and. You know, and uh, um, all these, all these guys. So, I, I mean, to me, it was the coolest thing ever. So right. I, well,
0: and, and and you know, and with inflation these days, I mean, hundred bucks is probably like like hundred and five dollars right yeah, now. So absolutely. That's really yeah, absolutely.
1: Really good. Yeah. So, the cool thing was was McCormick, was teamed up with a Canadian rider that I used to race against, named Jason Farnett. And Jason Fournette was racing um, pro as a privateer, doing pretty well. Him and McCormick had formed this little team. They traveled together. So I knew McCormick, um, obviously from Mount Morris. Then I realized Fernet was there. <clears throat> I reintroduced myself. We used to race against each other in the 80s. We didn't really know each other. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, we, we, I said Shane Drew was going home. He was parking the box van. I still hadn't had a job, really. Um, so Fernet said, Hey, I'm going to Quebec, Canada to go hang out at uh, this guy named Jean-Sébastien Waugh, Canadian rider. Right. I'm going to go hang out at his place for three weeks. Why don't you come with me and help me out? And I'm like, sweet. So I did that. And in the meantime, there was a team on the circuit called PJ1 Yamaha, and the owner of the dealership that was the main sponsor of the team used to promote arena crosses in Fargo and Grand Forks and Aberdeen and Sioux Falls, North Dakota. And he, right.
0: yeah, I remember they were
1: cool looking <clears throat> bikes, black and yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: They're they're so pretty cool looking.
1: This guy knew me as a racer, so I said, "Hey, do you need a mechanic?" And he's like, "Actually, I do." And I said, "Well, dude, hire me." And this was at Mount Morris, right? And he goes, oh, well, I mean, I don't. You know, have you ever done it before? Can you do it?" And I go, "Uh, no, I haven't, but you know, hey, I, I can do it." He's like, "Well, no, you're just not what um, you're just not what
0: I want, not, not what PJ One needs."
1: yeah yeah you're not you know this fine team here this establishment you know right, um right. and the story gets better from there but uh so i well, go maybe
0: maybe they're gonna they'll blame you for bringing them down I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not around anymore
1: yeah exactly so i go to quebec with Fernet, and we do some local races he beats JSR at a local race we get shunned by everybody because we beat the hero um <clears throat> JSR's mom suntan's topless outside that's awesome um but in the meantime, I was calling this Gary guy saying, Hey, I'm running out of money, you know, I gotta figure out what I'm doing. And uh we almost didn't get in the country because it was a guy from Manitoba, Canada, a guy from Red Deer, Alberta, Canada, driving a US box van with US bikes in the back. And they, the border guys was just like, What? You know, like what are you guys doing? So, anyways, <clears throat> um I was trying to figure- I was calling this Gary guy and he was reluctant to hire me. And uh uh, I said to him, Hey, listen, Gary, uh, um, I'll do it for free for like three weeks. I'll just, if I don't work out, send me home. Um, but I know I can do it, but I'll do it for free for three weeks. And I, I I had no money. I think I borrowed more money from, from my mom, Debbie at this point. So he goes, all right, sounds good. Meet me, come down to Bud's Creek and start that day. So I got my tools shipped out, uh, from home and like looking back on it, <laughs> like, Looking back on it, God, I was a brutal mechanic. I, I mean, I, I did the, the routine stuff, you know, on, on my bike because my dad was a car mechanic, so he taught me a little bit. But looking back on it, I was terrible. But that's all right. Everybody's got to start somewhere. So right. uh, I go down to Bud's Creek, and working for Button was Anthony Paggio from Oakley. Uh-huh. And um, and then so I uh, I went up to him and said, hey, I'm Corey Keeney's mechanic. And he was like, all right, cool. Like, he didn't care. Right. And I was like, I got my tools, you know what I mean? And, um, and that was it, dude. I started from Bud's Creek, and uh, it was my first job. I didn't screw anything up, I don't think, for – well, I screwed some things up building the bike and stuff, but not at the races. Like, nothing fell off or anything. So I must have done a good enough job to warrant full-time status on PJ1 Yamaha for $300 a week. So, I mean, I was on my way,
0: Right. Right, right. Well, hey man, this is this is ninety six. I mean, to set the scene, Factory Honda is still in box vans. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing McGrath and Lamson sitting in the back of a box van staring at everyone, sweating their balls off. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, okay, you were in the back of the pitch probably where Darren Durham is pitted at
1: now. We had a but we had a we had a we had a dually in a trailer, so we were like on the same level as P C and um uh, and PJ and uh Extreme Extreme uh Whatever the hell Castillo's team was, Great Western Bank.
0: Right. All right. So the the following
1: year, ninety seven, Ty Birdwell. So okay. Privateer. So let me go through what? this here. So uh, ninety six, I work for Keeney, and he he's not doing very well, and we drive all night from some race to some race, and I didn't paint his frame, and. Right. And he went like 17, 17 the week before. I actually have all those results written down somewhere here in a little, little, little like, organizer. But anyways, uh, I, didn't clean, I, didn't do his, I didn't paint his frame. We had to paint the frames every week, strip the bikes down. For, and I was learning from Paggio what to do and assembly lube. I'm like, what's assembly lube? You know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. And um, so I show up, and Keeney's like, why didn't you paint my frame? And I'm like, oh, dude, man. Sorry, we were just, we were, you know, driving all, all week and uh, popping many fins to stay awake. And I'm really sorry. It was, I just didn't get to it. You know what I mean? And, and he was like, No, I need my frame pen. And I was just like, Dude, you went 17 17. I don't think anybody cares about your frame. Okay. And, and that was it. That was, that was all she wrote. I, I, I worked that race. And the next race was Unadilla. And I show up Saturday morning for practice. Or maybe this was Friday when practices were on Friday. I don't remember. And I show up, and there's his dad, and he goes, yeah, my dad's my mechanic from now on. And I'm like, all right Right on. Way to go, Dick. That's awesome. Um, So I was out of a job just like that. Uh, He he wasn't – no longer wanted me. So then Sean Kalos, who was on the team, needed a mechanic. He was sort of doing it himself or bringing a buddy. So I worked for Kalos for two races. Then he broke his thumb at Troy, and I took him out on a golf cart, out to his car, Parked in Troy, Ohio. He parked it out by the road because he wanted to get out and catch his flight. That dude used to show up five minutes for his practice. And then after the, by the time I got back to the pits, after the after the moto, he was gone. With a little note, thanks, please check clutch, or whatever. Like, just gone. And uh, I dropped him off. He had a broken thumb. I said, hey, that thing's probably broken. He goes, yeah, I think it is. And I go, well, maybe we'll see you next week. He's like, maybe. And I never talked to him ever again. Um. <clears throat> So that was it for me. I was done after Washugal. Uh, I went to Victoria, Canada, after, to go work for my buddy Daryl, selling furniture. Um, he had an oak furniture business, and I was selling furniture and delivering furniture and, and um, out in Victoria on Vancouver Island, which was a super nice part of the, the country. And uh, meanwhile, I was just trying to get on with another team. And my buddy Fernand, who I'd now become pretty close with. He knew this privateer named Ty Birdwell who needed a mechanic and recommended me, and I was back. I was back in, and thanks to Fernet for saying, hey, Birdwell, you should hire this guy. So he was national number uh, 88, mm-hmm. and, uh, and his dad was loaded, owned some car dealerships in Oregon, and uh, so I had a brand new nice Ford Boxman with like a $7,000 stereo in it um, that was awesome. Was like I was, so this
0: wasn't wasn't a step down for you, even though he was a privateer and you yeah, came from a team. no, this, this was probably a step up.
1: No, it was a step up. The team, the PJ One team. I mean, me and Pagio were sleeping in hotel lobbies. Credit card wasn't working. We had to wait for the owner to put money on the credit card to buy gas. The next tank of gas, uh, I wasn't getting paid. You know, all this stuff. It, it, the team was slowly, as the season was going on, it was just falling to pieces and. The only thing that was keeping it around was Button was doing good, and probably putting his own money into it, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah, the team was falling apart. So the thing with Birdwell was sweet; like it was pretty much, you know, everything I needed, parts wise, bike wise, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, so yeah, right. It was, okay. It, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was all right. I mean, Birdwell was a great guy. His family was really nice. He he was talented, but he had you know he didn't work. He didn't work at it. He had zero uh, work ethic. I think in 97, we made uh, three or four mains out of 16 races. Never did good in the mains. He couldn't go 20 laps. And the Nationals, he got a point at the very first moto at Gainesville, 20th place. Ryan Hughes was coming up and almost would have got him in another two corners. But we got a point. And then we never scored another point the whole year. Um, 12 races, 24 motos, 23 motos, no points. So, <clears throat> but he had done good enough in 97. I was in a box, van. He had done good enough to get national number 87. He got one right. better from 88 <laughs> to 87. So, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, that was it. I worked for him again in 98. Right.
0: Now, going back, have has. Corey Keeney, ever seen you again? Has he ever, you know, said, "Hey, that was pretty stupid of me"? Or have have any of the guys who have, you know, maybe have done something that was kind of stupid or jackass ish, you know, um, seen you and said, "Hey, that nah. was dumb"? Or, or if you if you saw Keeney today, would he still be like, "You didn't paint my frame"? That yeah, was I don't know.
1: I've never seen Keeney since. Uh, he was a good guy, I guess. Whatever. I'm sure we'd laugh about it now. You know. I mean, I was brand new, and you know. I doubt I was, you know, a regular Mike Gossler, let's say. You know what I mean? Um, I don't remember screwing anything up on the bike at the races, but uh, I definitely wasn't. Well, if, right if there's
0: hand. one thing Goose is known for, it's his frame painting ability, you know, and it's, that's a high yeah, standard. Yeah, absolutely. No, too.
1: absolutely. And, and the thing was, was what was funny was, like, the guy was, like I said, he was struggling, you know. He was never getting top ten and scoring some points every now and then. And it, And it wasn't like the frame was – horrible it had been painted gotten one race without being painted you know what i mean it wasn't like it was uh, uh uh terrible but whatever i mean you know what when you're one thing i've learned about riders when they're struggling it's very very rare for a rider to look in the mirror those who do uh are to be uh commended because generally they look around first you know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Most, well,
0: nothing is ever your fault, Steve. You can always blame somebody else for well, your issues.
1: And I, I, you know what? And that's probably like that in life. You know what I mean? You're a fireman. You probably see that shit all the time where you're the first on the scene of a car crash or some, you know, drug addict or, or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so, I
0: don't even listen to it. I, I, I can figure it out myself whose who's fault <laughs> it is. I don't need to hear your story. Right.
1: <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, whatever. So, yeah, now knowing, knowing what I know now, I, I don't have any ill will will on Keeney I just, uh, you know, whatever. So.
0: Right. Now, would that happen these days? I mean, would, you know, on a team level would, you know, rider a say, Hey mechanic, did you do this? No. Okay. This guy's my mechanic now. Or, or since a mechanic is more an employee of the team, you know, how, how does that go about?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really different now. Um, there's so many teams in the pits that keep their mechanics, then the the guys that you know stick with their riders through their career are pretty much non-existent now now the teams are built around the mechanics and if the rider has a problem with the mechanic generally speaking the team does not um uh doesn't do you know the the team doesn't go hey we're, we're going to fire your mechanic you know what i mean like this doesn't right. happen yeah
0: right which is which is how i always thought it should be for you guys to have some stability anyway
1: I've yeah been... yeah no it's good and bad i see both sides of it it's good and bad. So Right. All right. So you were
0: offered, ninety eight offered a job at FMF Honda working for Danny Smith. Uh, I believe this was the year that Honda went aluminum frame for the one twenty fives.
1: Um well correct? first first I went back with Birdwell in ninety eight. I, I we were such a super team and I took him from eighty eight to eighty seven that I mean only another eighty six years we would have been number one. So right. <laughs> I uh, I stuck with Birdwell for another year. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um the job was good. I, I was getting frustrated at the lack of results, but I was getting a regular paycheck. Uh all expenses paid. We've come to find out what's funny, though, is Watson worked for Birdwell two years before me. And he told me that, and that's when I first met the enigma that is Kenny Watson. But uh, right. Watson told me, hey, when I worked for Birdwell, I got hotels every night. I ate every meal on the credit card. And, I, I mean, you know, Ray Ray was Birdwell's dad. Ray Birdwell paid for everything. So me getting, you know, being fresh out of Canada, Birdwell's like, hey, take it easy on the credit card. You know what I mean? Like, if you really need a hotel, go ahead, but, you know, don't go crazy. And so basically I slept in the, in the box van uh, Sunday or stayed at a friend's house if I could, if somebody I knew I was traveling for net. I slept in the box van Sunday to Thursday, showered at truck stops, um, paid for all my own meals, worked on the bike, you know, or stayed at a friend's house, I, and I would never put anything on the credit card. I was freaking out. I didn't want to get fired. I just loved the job. I wanted to keep the job. You know, I was learning, and uh, kind of find out Watson was like living high on the hog two years earlier on that same credit card. But whatever.
0: So right, would well, probably use everything up. So you had to do
1: it yeah, the way maybe. you were doing it anyway. So I went. I went back with Birdwell Super Team um, in '98, and then. Indianapolis, which was you know in March, I think, right around uh, Bike Week, sometime, either before Bike Week or after, he he crashed at Indianapolis, and he compound fractured his toe, next to the big toe, whatever toe that is.
0: So that's the pointer toe, Steve. Okay. Everyone knows that.
1: All right, the pointer toe. So he he goes, he takes the boot off. It's full of blood. There's a bone sticking out. I go to the hospital with him, Indianapolis. It's like midnight, you know, after the Supercross. He did it in a heat race or semi. Doctor comes in and goes, well, I can either – two things. I can either pin it and and re- reconstruct it, or I can cut it off at, at the knuckle of the pointer toe. Sure. Nothing will happen. You'll be back in two weeks if I cut it off. If I pin it, you'll be back in like four to six. And I'm like, cut it off, cut it off. And, and Birdwell's like, no, 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 let's pin it. So that was it. Four to six weeks, I had no rider, and I was in Florida, or Indianapolis anyways, going to Florida and I basically was like what do I do and he's like just hang out so literally I had like a month vacation in this box van and I slept in the box van at Reddick cycle park in Florida in central Florida I would I joined a gym I would shower and work out in the gym shower in the gym I got athletes foot in the gym that was awesome but uh mm. um so I waited for Birdwell to get back healthy but meanwhile unbeknownst to me Birdie was really enjoying his summer or spring and summer off. So um, he wasn't really rushing to come back. So I was getting a little frustrated. And FMF Honda, we were sponsored by FMF. And the FMF guy that got us our pipes said, uh, hey, there's an opening on this FMF Honda team. We just fired a couple of mechanics. And one of the mechanics they fired was Brent Myron, who now works for Motor Concepts, worked for Mike Brown, worked for a bunch of guys. He was one of the guys that got fired right. to open up a spot for me. So he said, I put your name in there because, you know, your bikes always look good, and you seem to be doing a good job. You're a good guy. And I'm like, yeah. You know, I mean, this was a big Frames were always
0: painted. You're on.
1: Yeah, frame was painted. You know, we powder-coated then because we had the Cowies, so we did the uh, flow green powder-coating like the factory bikes. But, of course, oh, were, they, nice. Kawasaki wouldn't give anybody the paint code for the bikes. So all the privateers had to sort of guess what it was. So that was always awesome. Mm. We always ended up with uh, all these privateers had ended up with different color frames. But, right. Um, which also, too, by the way, when I was Birdwell's mechanic and Jeremy Albrecht was Emig's mechanic, he was great to me. He was always a good guy. I came to him with questions, and you know, he gave me some spare parts and takeoffs and stuff, so I always used to think to myself, I'm nobody, and this Jeremy Albrecht kit guy is actually pretty cool. So, you know, it always makes me think highly of J-Bone to this day. Mm-hmm. Like, he gave me always the time of day, you know. So, anyways, uh, so FMF hires me to work for Danny Smith, and what happens there? Okay, so I tell Birdwell, he doesn't care. He's okay. He's partying. It doesn't matter to him. Um, I fly from Southern California. FMF's so cheap, they fly me out on a red eye. On a, so the race is on Saturday. Charlotte Supercross on a Saturday. They fly me out Thursday night at midnight. I get to Charlotte 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning on Friday morning. And I and they just I just go to the truck and they're like here build your bike it's in pieces never worked on a Honda before <clears throat> you know never um, never did anything like that and I was like oh great this is awesome tired is all fuck all you know just tired and uh, and I build the bike and I'm just like well where does this bolt go I just got I mean somebody had tore it down for me so it was in pieces so I was like okay well I guess I'll figure where this bolt goes and where this goes <clears throat> so it was really tough um, to to step right in. And I had pressure. I mean, their official Honda support team. So, um, I didn't know what happened. Um, yeah, I, I I bolted the front sprocket on, and it was all good. It was all tight. The next day, practice goes okay, whatever. Everything goes okay. In the heat race, Danny Smith's front sprocket falls off. And, yeah. and I'm like, oh, great. But it was tight. It, uh, but... I'm like, oh, great. So he, uh, we go back. We, don't figure, we, we, we put a new bolt in or something. I think he makes it through the night, whatever, gets six or seven. <clears throat> Turns out that the old mechanic, whoever worked on the bike, was air gunning the bolt in to the main shaft, <clears throat> to the counter shaft, I should say, and was mushing the threads up. He was putting so much torque on it with an air gun. So right. it was giving you like a false, a false tightness on the boat. So it really wasn't my fault that this is Honda had analyzed this. And then, but of course, Danny Smith doesn't know this, you know, Danny Smith just thinks I'm an idiot or nobody tells Danny. So it kind of was, I got off on the wrong foot and it never got, I never got on the right foot with that team. Like, and through some of my own faults, but you know, the team was disorganized. They said to me, Hey, uh, there's a house you can live in that we have for the race team that you can live in in Southern California. Um, so you don't need to find a place or anything. I wasn't making any money still, you know? Right. And, uh, <clears throat> so I go to first time back in California, I go to this house and there's literally 10 South Africans that work FMF support that are living in this house. And they uh-huh. basically tell me there's no room for me. We don't know who you are. You can't live here. And I'm like, but they told me too bad. Where are you going to sleep? We're everywhere. You're South Africans everywhere. So, um, <laughs> so I, uh, I ended up going buying an air mattress and sleeping in the race shop down in Torrance. And it was super dark, and uh, there was rats and stuff in there, but I closed an office door. It was an old office building. closed an office door, slept in there. There was a shower in there, thankfully. And I slept in the race shop for, you know, months. And uh, miserable as all hell. But I just wanted to do it that bad, dude. I just, you know, I just wanted to be a mechanic on a race team so bad. I was gonna do anything, you know? And that's part of the reason why foreigners there's a lot of foreigners that are mechanics. And that's part of the reason why foreigners are so successful, I think, because they want to do it so bad and there's no distractions that they that they just work out. They have to work out. Do you know what I mean?
0: Right, right. Yeah, I hear you on that. It it kind of works like that in my job too. It's you know, you there's the people that want it the hardest or the people that came from somewhere else. And they got to, or else they got to go back to where they came from. Yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: and it's like Canada is not a third world country, but I was, I had no friends. I I really just worked my balls off and slept in the race shop, ate at the Mexican place on the corner, and, uh, you know, that was it. And then so, like, but it wasn't going good. The team, the team sucked. Um, uh, Danny was crashing a lot, and I was, you know, I was screwing things up. I was, I was, uh, Sometimes I would go out on a Friday or a Saturday night before national and you know not get loaded but drink a little bit then feel shitty on Sunday morning and then not be on top of my game, you know, and I screwed up the timing of his power valves one time uh um at a, on a practice day and he him and I never really he didn't really trust me. He just never did. He was a good guy, uh, but he never trusted me and and it didn't go well for me the first big high pressure job that I got. I was like Oh, shit. I felt like I was always one step behind, you know? So right. um, <clears throat> Bud's Creek, again, I started at Bud's Creek in 96. Bud's Creek 98, your home track. Right. Uh, Danny blows out his knee in the LCQ. This is after um, his motor blew up in the heat race to qualify for the motos. And it turns out I put the wrong circlip in, but I grabbed the circlip from – We had like a cardboard box full of circlips. Right. And I just grabbed a circlip out of there. And so the Honda guys came to me and it was one of them was Dan Bentley, who's still there today and is a good friend of mine. Hey, they said, Where'd you get the circlip from? And I go, I got it from that box over there. So they go and they measure every circlip in the box, and there is no other circlip that is the like the one that I put in that they said was too small. Right. And I go, Listen. Where do you think I'm... Do you think I'm pooping out this tour clip? Where do you think I would have got it from? Like, just another example of just, like, shit that went sideways um, at some point, you know, for me. So, um, you know, basically, uh, I was just... never worked out. So, Danny tore up his knee. I got back to Southern California. FMF sent me to uh, Loretta Lynn's to um, to do Honda support over there. And uh, when I got back, they fired me, which I knew was coming anyways.
0: Right. I... Uh- when that team came out, I thought they were trying to make a run at PC. I thought they were going to be like Geico is today, and then I guess it just didn't happen. So, how bad were those bikes? I mean, so well, ninety-eight, one yeah. twenty-five. Think first year for the aluminum frame. The two fifties already had a bad reputation.
1: Yeah, the, how bike, bad the, were those bikes? the bikes weren't very good. You can ask Pingree; he was on that team with me. Uh, the bikes right. weren't very good. <clears throat> what funny was? We had Terry Varner doing the motors. He worked at FMF then. And then there was a guy named Mike Hooker that worked at Honda. And I guess the story was when FMF got the deal, they went to Varner, dropped off Lampson's motor from when he won the national championship and said, copy this, this works. And apparently Varner thought that's shit, I can do better. And so we used to like, as a mechanic, Varner would be like, hey, what, 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 um, What jetting do you have on your bike? And uh, you'd tell him, and he'd be like, who told you that? And we'd be like, "Uh, Mike Hooker told us to put that in. Oh, no, 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 Mike, Hooker's an idiot. Put this in. So you'd go, okay. And then Hooker would come by and say, what do you have for the jets? Because he'd listen to your bike, and you'd tell him, he'd go, did Terry tell you that? And you'd be like, yeah. And he'd be like, oh, God. Like, if Hooker wanted a 160 main in there, Varner would be like, put a 180 in. Like, Varner was always more fuel, you know what I mean? More fuel. Hooker was always less. So uh-huh. the team wasn't run very well. It wasn't organized well. It was a cluster at times, and the bikes weren't very fast, partly due to the, the way that the bikes were designed with an aluminum frame. Um, right. the, the, the the air boot wasn't very in a very good location from what I remember, so it wasn't able to get a lot of air, wasn't able to make a lot of power um, mm-hmm. because of aluminum frame. So it was a... It was my first introduction to, uh, to a big team, and I was scarred for life. I was just like, this sucks, you know, and you know, basically at the end of the year, they said, hey, uh, you know, we don't know what we're doing next year. Um, you know, we're not really sure where you fit in. We're going to try to keep you, but we got this guy coming on and this guy coming on, and, you know, you can stick around. We're not really sure, and I go, I- I'm done here, right? And the guy goes, yeah, you're done. <laughs> I, I mean, it was just hilarious, right out of the movies I go, no, that's fine, I mean, I know it You know what I mean, you just know when things aren't Working out, so, that was it I was done That was, right. that was the end of 98, and I had a hell of a time trying to get a job I I, I, uh, I was calling Teams and, and talking to people And it just nothing was working out, I was talking to Planet Honda, which Paul Lindsay managed I was talking to Dean Marini team I was talking to Just privateers, and just nothing Was working out, and in the meantime, I would met an old racer named Billy Lyles at Loretta Lynn's when I was there. And I said, hey, man, I really, I've always wanted to go to Europe and do the GPs. And he was like, well, just if you ever want to go, I'll get you a job. No problem. I'll set you up. I got tons of connections from when I raced there. And I was like, sweet. So I actually picked the phone up one day and called him. And he was like, yeah, I can, I can do it. So he, he got me a job in Germany to do all the GPs. Um, this was the, the winter of 98 going into 99. Right. And uh so that was it. I packed up and went to Europe. Uh determined to do the GPs. I, I worked for a team in Germany, uh a KTM team, and it uh, it just it didn't go well from the start. I wasn't getting paid. Like, I think I got I think I got twelve hundred Dorschmarks a month. But like to eat one meal out was thirty Dorschmarks. So like just going <laughs> for like a, a hamburger and a Coke was like thirty Dorschmarks. And so if I went there twice, you know, that's 60 DM a day, that's uh, uh, 400, it's $400 a week in food, and I was making 1200 you know, do the math. So I wasn't... I
0: can't do German math, but go ahead. Yeah,
1: I just wasn't making any money. It was cold as hell. Uh, my riders sucked. The team manager guy and I were not seeing eye to eye. He uh, he was trying to save money on parts. I remember one time I went to him and said, "We had a test day." I was working for a guy from Finland named Mika Serenkowski, and Mika's claim to fame was the year before he passed. Um, uh, and um, Alessio Chiodi, remember the Chiodi guy who wrote Huskies and was one hundred five world champion. He passed. Okay, he passed Cioti, uh the year before in the sand and led. A couple laps so that was his claim to fame so uh we go to testing in in Belgium at the sand track and I say to him hey uh I need new rear brake pads and you know we're going to sand test and and this guy's like no 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 your brake pads are fine I'm not giving you new brake pads he'd kept all the parts locked in a closet in his office so if you Uh. needed anything you had to ask him and uh and so basically I said okay all right cool so I put the brake pads back in. We go to this track on KTMs. This is like 90, like I said, 98, 99. So they're no linkage orange. They're tapioca orange at this point. Um, and uh, my rider, Mika, does a moto. And near the end of the moto, he blows through the corner and through a f- snow fence. And then I get to him. I get to him. And he's like, my brake, my brake. A- and uh, and I look. And, and sure enough, he had no rear brake pads. His piston, the piston in the, pa- in the, in the caliber was just hitting the rotor. They were just done. And, uh
0: it well, doesn't work for stopping,
1: huh? Right, and so I was like, you know, f this. Like, you know, I kind of got into it with a guy, and I said, you know, you can't, you can't do that, and it makes me look that, and this and that, and uh, and you know, we kind of got into an argument, and it just it wasn't working out over there. I was homesick. There was no, there was dial up internet, and I couldn't really figure out how to work. So I really had no connection to the to the outside world, and <clears throat> um, I just knew, and I also too, I just the riders complained about this guy, the team, the team owner, and I knew this thing wasn't going to work, and apparently we were going to do all the GPs, but, you know, I I don't really know, and so, at the end of January, I checked my pager, my U.S. pager, um, remember, remember pagers, and, uh, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, check my pager, and there was a message on there from two days before, from a guy at No Yamaha, who said, hey, uh, uh, we have Tim Ferry riding for us, and his mechanic just quit, and his mechanic, who was Dave Dye, a friend of mine still, uh-huh. rec- recommended you for the job, uh, and we want to know if you're still interested. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like fate. So right. I called the dude back, and I don't know what time it was in Germany, but whatever. I called the dude back. I'm like, yes, I want the job. He goes, uh, yeah, you want it, and you can have it. Just you know, come to Anaheim this weekend. And I'm like, all right, I'll take it. But I didn't tell the guy I was in Germany. I left that part right. out, uh, so I got a ticket, I think I had an open-ended ticket, I think I knew that it, w- it may go bad, this Germany thing, so I think I bought an open-ended ticket or something, so anyways, uh, I went to the shop the next day, and at the end of the day, I was packing up my tools, and uh, the, 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 the mechanic I worked with, a French guy, was like, what are you doing, because I was like packing up all my tools, you know, and he, I, I said, uh, I'm just taking these home to clean. You know, I'm just taking these, taking these home to clean them up, and uh, he's like, "Oh, okay." Meanwhile, I was out of there. You know, I went at the end of the day. I went to my boss, and the guy just said, "Hey, I'm not happy. This thing's not working out. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here." So, got on a flight, flew back from Germany uh, to LAX, and that morning, Friday morning, Tim Ferry picked me up from LAX as his new mechanic, not ever knowing me before. Right. So the, the connection was made, and uh, he took, picked me up, took me straight to uh, Anaheim for practice on Friday, and the bike right. was built, and that's it. We, he got 10th the next night at Anaheim, and uh, it was on. He was top privateer that year in 99, and I guess maybe I was lear- hitting my stride as a mechanic. I was learning a little bit more, and maybe I was a little better and taking it a little more seriously because FMF Honda was such a screw-up. Um mm-hmm. and there's actually a story about my FMF days on Pulpamax if you just search. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was it. Um I started working for Timmy and driving a box van and I was back down to like four hundred dollars a month or a week, I mean, for Nolene. And it was we were dump by the end of the supercar series, we were dumping our own money into it uh to get the thing going and <clears throat> things weren't getting paid and checks were bouncing and Timmy and I Timmy was doing so well that we were just keeping it going because you know, we had to. And eventually, uh, Larry Brooks picked up Ferry at, for Chaparral Yamaha for the outdoors after the right. f- first two rounds. Um, right. So, I, And I mean, this was
0: the McGrath Chaparral Yamaha. Yeah. Not, this was not the, the Chaparral that had, you know, four different brands under the No, this no, tent. yeah, this was and McGrath. was managing and racing.
1: McGrath and Lampson uh, were a right. team. But McGrath obviously wasn't doing the outdoors then. So, um, yeah, so that was it. Picked us up. And we did the rest of the outdoors. I think Red Dog got a sixth or something, uh, outdoors that season in 250s. And uh he got ninth in Supercross, top privateer. Right. <clears throat> and that was it. This I mean was, now I was this now. The I year was back, of your, you know? have uh, your
0: your your great Al Bundy story. Once scored four touchdowns in one game at poke high, your <laughs> your summer cross win.
1: Yeah. Yeah, ninety nine summer cross. We uh we didn't want to do the race, it was in the middle of the nationals and it was a one off race at the at the uh at the um coliseum and mcgrath was like the only guy going and uh other than that it was like mike craig pedro gonzalez uh, you know not a lot of heavy hitters and i guess the rumor was it was 25 grand to win the purse it was a huge purse and uh the rumor was the guy paid the promoter paid mcgrath 50 grand and said you can't win the purse because the the the, right. the, the 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 second place was ten grand. It was a big drop off, twenty five to ten. You know. Yeah. So the promoter said, "Listen, you're going to win this race. I'm going to pay you fifty grand. You can't win the twenty five, um, and I'm going to just you know have to pay ten thousand dollars to the winner to the second place guy. That's all I'm going to have to pay." Well, he paid McGrath fifty grand, and Red Dog won twenty five grand, and there was no summer cross after that because I think the guy lost a ton of money. Um, but yeah, it was good. Uh, McGrath was winning until the very end, and then uh, uh, he crashed. I like to say while well, was pressuring him, but he really wasn't. Um, mm. And we won. Yeah, it was cool. It was. It was and I, 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 legend was born, right? <laughs> right.
0: Now, now going back, Ferry went from the Nolene team to the Chaparral team. Now I thought I remember that Nolene team going outdoors. So did he just leave and get a better <laughs> deal, or what, no? What there was there? no,
1: no, there was no Nolene team. It was me and him and a box fan. We did. Glen Helen and Hangtown, and he went. I think he went eleven ten 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 in four motos on the Nolene Yamaha. Then we went to a Chaparral Yamaha for the round three, and he got he went six six at Mount Morris. And okay. uh, and so the bike was way better. Pro Circuit motor, Enzo suspension, and the first time Red Dog rode it, he almost looped it out. Uh, he was everywhere he went. It was just it was way better bike. And Brooks was is uh, is a good manager, intense as all hell. And, um, you know, I think Brooks really helped Timmy out that much that year a lot. So,
0: Right. Now, at the end of that year, he fired you.
1: Yeah, I uh, – and it was so funny because they, they brought me along as a mechanic because they needed a mechanic. But no one – Dave Dameron, who, who owns Chaparral, is the cheapest MFR in the world. Um, uh-huh. He wanted the truck driver to save the water bottles and refilled all the old water bottles with the hotel sinks. Because he was spending too much money on water. There was sandwich meat in the cooler that was only for McGrath, I guess, in the Supercrosses. You know, like, everybody else got one kind of sandwich meat, and McGrath got the good kind. Um, so, Dave inherited my pay, which was, whatever, 400 a week. But he told, he told the truck driver, hey, this guy has to... I drove in the semi with the driver, who is now Brian Barnhart, from drives Kawasaki now. I drove with him, and he hated me. I was like this guy, just put on him. I didn't get any hotels paid for. I didn't get any travel paid for. I was literally like, hey, hey, congratulations, you're on Chaparral Yamaha, Jeremy McGrath's team. Uh, yeah, you'll be sleeping in the bunk in the semi, and you get no hotels. Right. So it sucked. Like, for me, it was terrible. The only good thing was that, uh, oh, and, and Lance's mechanic, Jerry Campbell, he didn't like me either because i don't know just they didn't like me him and larry and big b were tight and i'm this stupid kid that's asking a lot of questions and timmy's doing really well and and, and so my deal itself wasn't good timmy's deal worked out good and, and he was doing well so but i was sleeping the truck driver with brian would be like hey i'm getting a hotel tonight but dave dameron said i could and i'm like oh sweet yeah you're not you're sleeping in the truck and i'm like Oh, can I shower? No. You know, like, it's a shitty but I'll,
0: I'll fill up a bottle of hotel water for you. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I'll drop it off. I'll drop it out of the
1: fourth floor for you. Um, so my deal wasn't very good. So at the end of the year, they rehire Ferry for the 2000 season. They tell me that I'm in. I'm going to be Ferry's mechanic again. Everything's going great. Um, I'm working there all in the off season. I'm living in Newport Beach. I'm driving from Newport Beach to San Bernardino, which if anybody is listening from Southern California, that drive sucks balls, but it didn't matter. I was I was living high. And uh they gave me a they gave me a Mazda, they were sponsored by Mazda, gave me a Mazda mm-hmm. Troy Lee truck back then, which is mm-hmm. which was super cool. I was driving this, you know, truck with flames on it and
0: I remember that thing it and, had like a, a cubby for your pressure washer or something like that. No, that, that was and- that
1: was a prototype one. The one that they actually sold didn't have that. Um Okay. And uh, I thought I was pretty much, you know, king shit of Turner Island. So uh, I was working for Ferry. They gave me my bike to build. I should have known something was up, though. Jerry Campbell gives me all my titanium bolts. And he says, uh, hey, uh, here's all your bolts for your bike, and, uh, you know, you need to start building your race bike. And I'm like, cool, right on. Okay, this was, like, late October. Uh, you know, a week later, Jerry goes, hey, do you got those bolts? And I'm like, Yeah. And he's like, can I have those back? And I'm like, why? Uh, I got to count them. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right, here you go. Well, uh, the next day, Larry calls me in and goes, hey, uh, bad news. Jerry's going to be Timmy's mechanic. Uh, you're fired. And come to find out years later, Dave Dameron said to everybody want, everybody wanted raises on the team. The truck driver, Jerry Campbell, Larry Brooks, they all wanted raises on the team. They weren't making much money. And they went to Dave and said, hey, we need a raise. And, and I guess Dave said, this is the story I got. Dave said, okay, well, what you can do is uh, <clears throat> either keep that mechanic that you just got on, or you can fire that mechanic, Larry, and I'll take his salary that I was going to pay him and uh, divide it up among you three. But now you th- but Jerry, you need to get back to work as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. So guess what happened? They, they all threw me overboard, right? Right. So Larry fires me, uh, still feels bad about it to this day, he says, um, yeah, right, and, uh, um, you know, it was nothing I did, Timmy was powerless, he couldn't do nothing, you know, he was like, yeah, I don't. I mean, what can I do, huh? you know, so I kind of got the raw end of the deal there, and so uh, it was really late for me to get a job, like, everybody had been hired, you know, but luckily, Timmy had a good year, and, you know, I had good results, and no problems with the bike, so... I got lucky in the fact that my buddy from Canada, who I'd just gotten to know, he wasn't a childhood friend or anything, but a guy named Alan Brown was team manager of KTM, the factory KTM team. They were going racing for the first time. As they got a semi, they got riders and all that. And uh I guess they had one spot left and they were they tried to fill it and the dude was a flake or something, so it didn't work out but you know, it was, like I said, it was super late in the year, and, but I got on. I got hired. So I got hired to be Keith Johnson's mechanic. So uh, for me, you know, I was like, hey, sweet. I'll take it. You know what I mean? I had nothing at that, at that point. So off I went to Factory KTM, which, you know, says Factory KTM in the title, but it was, you know, pretty cheeseball. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the BTOSports.com podcast show. It's that time. Time for a commercial. Thanks for listening to the BTOSports.com podcast show please don't
0: forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike, our body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for three Oh nine 99, 45% off or Smith piston goggles for 32 99, 65% off your order can be shipped anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at btosports.com Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to get into. I mean, it's, it's your first factory wrench job, but it's with KTM. KTM was a bit different than they are today. I mean, I feel like today they feel like they belong. They feel like they're competitive. Uh, they should be up there. But I was going to ask you, back then, how, how was the morale on the team? Did they really feel like they were there? Um, or did they no. kind of know like, uh, this is not it? I mean, you, you got them their first win.
1: Dude, Matt we,
0: Morris. We went. <laughs> in the mud. Pastrana coming from behind. Yeah. Right? but
1: no, Yeah, no, Pastrano was winning, and a spark plug cap fell off. Um, right. And Kelly Smith won, won four. But, dude, we went racing the first year with Kelly Smith, Keith Johnson, Andy Harrington. Did we have Roderick Thane then? I don't even remember. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, Roderick Thane. I mean, you know, we didn't have the riders to compete with anybody. You know what I mean? So, like, the expectations were pretty low, but – Everybody knew that this was just a building year, you know. But the, the worst thing about it was the management. Like Salvaraj Narayana, who is still a KTM and has been there thirty years, forty years, and he just got an award from the Supercross people, and all these people like him. He's a fucking idiot, you know. So uh <laughs> uh I, he just didn't know how to run a race team. He was right. he would tell you one thing one day, turn around and tell somebody else the other day. He would lie to different people. Um, you know, my experience with him was, was not good. I, he was friendly, but I mean, now look, now knowing what I know now, he was, he was lying to me. He was lying to everybody. He was oh. uh, not competent in a race team director. He may be competent at whatever he does, you know, office wise and administration wise, but uh, as a race team guy, it was terrible. So Alan was doing his best. Allen was a team manager, but Selvaraj often would, uh, you know, uh, over overrule them or whatever, and um, team was a bit of a disaster. But yeah, KTM Kelly Smith won, so um, you know that's good.
0: <clears throat> right, and you rode that out for two years, 2000, yeah. 2001. Yeah,
1: I was uh, I was supposed to work for Keith Johnson, and uh, um, then and then I took Keith Johnson to my to a private track that me and Birdwell used to ride at up in Simi Valley, and Keith promptly broke both wrists three laps in, so. Good job, Mathis, for taking the guy to a special track where he breaks both wrists. Um, So he was done. Kelly Smith's mechanic was fighting with management over different stuff. Like, he was a suspension guy, and he used to take the suspension apart and change what they had done. And so kind of thought he was smarter than the dudes at KTM. So they canned him, and I got to work with Kelly Smith. So that's how it went. And then he rode the 520 four-stroke on the West Coast Supercrosses, made like two or three mains, and then rode 125 East Coast. Um, Supercross and of course Nationals and yeah we won a National unbelievable can't believe it still to this day like somehow pulls off a win he was always a great mud rider though right alright
0: so you moved on yeah. 2002 to Mo Triple X yeah, how that happen did you did you want to leave KTM or did uh, how that go? No. yeah
1: KTM the next year they hired a guy named Justin Quinn to manage Alan Brown got turfed um, got, got canned uh, somewhat controversial. Well, he's a friend of mine, so I, I guess not, you know I only see one one way, one side to that. But anyways, they hired just kind of Justin Quinn, who had absolutely zero experience running a team. I don't know what his credentials were beforehand. I'm not sure what happened. So this Justin Quinn was now managing the team with Salvage, and you can just cue in more circus music um, as it went on because we we stepped up and got Grant Langston who had won the world title the year before. So Langston was fast. I mean, he was legit. You, you can remember that. And, uh, but, you know, Langston, Langston kind of, him and his dad ran things a little bit the way they wanted to run them. And we brought a motor guy in from, from, uh, fa- the factory team in Europe named Harry Nolte. And he seemed to only care about Langston because Langston was the guy. And we had brought, got, got Brock Sellards, got Pingry, Kelly Smith was the only holdover that kept him, um, And, uh, 2001 went, all right. Kelly, I don't know. I don't remember how it went. He had some good finishes here and there. Top, I think, at fourth at Hangtown. And, um, then he didn't qualify for some motos, too, some races, too. So, uh, I had my choke come out on me. When's the last time I choked Backed out of a carburetor? Um, uh, anyways. So, then, what happened was I was sick of the team at that point. I was like, you guys do not know what you're doing, and... Maybe I was a little bit cocky. I don't know. I just I, – I didn't think it was going very well, this Harry Nolte guy. you know guy. Who
0: I think I am? I'm Steve Bassett from Canada. God yeah, day, yeah. I worked I,
1: for PJ1. You know, I'm looking back on it. Maybe I thought I was better than what I was. I don't know. Hard to say, but I just I – I didn't like the team. I didn't think it was going good. I didn't like this Harry Nolte guy, um, They but they brought in Ron Heben. To run and and Ron Heben's been around a long time, got a lot of credentials, and I I really liked Slicer. I still like him to this day, and I thought he was going to make a difference. But um, I was out of there because Larry Brooks told me, You're going to work for Ryan Hughes next to Jeremy McGrath. And I said, Are you sure? Yes, you're you're hired. You're done. I I went down and met him and everything else. And then Rhino goes, So then I tell KTM, I tell KTM, Hey, I'm out of here. Like, they go, what are you doing next year? I go, I'm out of here. Um, this was before Steel City. I go, uh, I got another job. So, you know, I work Steel City, and I work a couple weeks after, and then I'm out of there because Larry Brooks told me I'm good. So right. then uh, Steel City, 2001, uh, Ryan Hughes is on a factory Honda 4-stroke, the prototype works bike, and he weeds himself. I mean, puts himself concussion. He's in a hospital, spleen, kidney. I don't know what the deal was. Rhino never races again. No, he does. He comes back from KTM like two years later. But right. anyways, so, so then McGrath didn't hire Rhino, and therefore I couldn't get a job. Right. So I, I, said, I went back to KTM and said, hey, can I have my job back? Sorry about all that stuff I was saying earlier. And they were like, yeah, no, beat it. That was right. even, And I don't blame them for saying that. So, right. so then I was uh, left with uh, nothing else except uh, my buddy Alan Brown, uh, no, wait. No, I got Alan a job at Triple X. No, okay. So, I got a, Through Kelly Smith, I met Nick Way, fellow Michigan rider. Nick uh, Way needed a mechanic at Moto Triple X. He left Yamaha Troy to go ride Moto Triple X the next year. And I needed a job, and so we hooked up that way. So, then I started working for Nick at Moto Triple X. And then I ended up getting my buddy Alan Brown a job working for Kyle Lewis that same year on Moto Triple X. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that year was uh, a bit of a clown show. It was kind of back to my, back to my roots of Birdwell box van, right. uh, no money, um, driving every race, doing the the suspension changes, oil changes, doing the motor, splitting the cases, doing everything myself on the bike. But Nick was on it, rode well, and was top privateer that supercross. So uh, that was pretty good. You know, it was another good year um, for 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 us. But behind the scenes. It was a shit show, you know?
0: Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that team looked, you know, okay on the outside, but I'm sure, like you said, it was a a clown car on the inside, and you guys were just holding it together.
1: Absolutely. So, Lewis was good, though. Outdoors, we go outdoors, and Nick tore his knee up practicing for the outdoor season. and He missed – he was going to miss the first three or four races, and the the owner of Triple X is like, hey, uh, I can't pay you. And I go, hey, I can't work here. (laughs) <laughs> and he goes, he goes, okay. Like he was just wanting me to just, Nick was coming back. It wasn't like he, you know, he didn't lapse into a coma and we didn't know what was going to happen to him. He was coming back in three or four weeks. The owner is just trying to save money by not paying me, knowing full well that I'll come back. And I go, and I, go I can't work here. And um, I can't pay you. And so I almost left right there at some point to go for another job for the outdoors. But I think Nick ended up. Paying me or something, I don't know. And so I stuck it out. So Nick came back at round three or four of the outdoors, and I don't remember what he got. Somewhere in the top ten, maybe right around ten or eleven. Uh, but Kyle Lewis killed it all summer on a CRF four hundred and fifty. He was top five all the time. So the team, Triple X team. I mean, we had Larry Ward too, who who uh, was right up front in the two hundred and fifty nationals, and mm-hmm. then Nick and uh, Kyle. I mean, it was a solid team. Just held together with bubble gum and zip ties, you know. But we did a good job, all of us, and the riders and mechanics. So at the end of 02, Nick was got a ride with Mach 1 Yamaha, and Ferry, Ferry's mechanic at Factory Yamaha, he had moved on to Factory Yamaha. Ferry's mechanic was quitting, and he pushed for me, and they told him, we don't want to hire that guy. And Timmy said, no, you have to hire him. You have to. He's my buddy. You have, to, you have to get him. And they said, we want another guy. And, and Timmy, to his credit, he, I mean, this is what he told me anyways. He was like, nope, nope, I want this guy. So I was sitting in Michigan with my, with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Pookie. Right. And we were at a Mexican restaurant when my phone rang, and it was Jimmy Perry from Factory Yamaha saying, uh, hey, we want to talk to you about working for Tim Ferry next year. Uh-huh. And I was like, sweet, because Nick, <clears throat> you know, I was already going. Yeah, I don't think Nick – Nick, I was going to stay with Nick. I had no problems. We got along good. Uh, he drove me nuts sometimes, but um, we got along pretty good. And uh, Well, I thought I
0: was going to ask you on a side note with Nick Way, I can't help but notice your relationship now with Nick is not the same it is with Timmy. I mean, I know you guys have some drama going on this instant, but it's not the same with Nick, and I know you've had to be <laughs> – critical of him recently um but it's just it's not the same what, what what's up with that
1: well i mean i only worked for nick one year you know i worked for timmy for four um just timmy and i got along better nick and i get along great we 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 did we got along good um there would he's he's a he's a he's a hard he's not an easy guy to work for you can ask any mechanic that that and uh so we got into it a few times. Uh, there was a, he, he kept burning at the shit out of his clutches uh, in Supercross, and I was switching clutches and oil, and I was calling Henson, and I was, I was taking the adjuster off his bar. And <clears throat> I was like, dude, there's nothing else. I split his cases. The, the, one of the, the, the main shaft uh, bearing was sealed on a Yamaha, and, I, and I, somebody, Dave Chase at Pro Circuit, told me to peel, that, peel the seal off. To let more oil in. I did all of that stuff. And he was burning up clutches bad to the fact that at the end of twenty laps he could barely bike would barely move. And I go, listen, dude, I've talked to Henson, I've talked to Maxima, I've talked to Pro Circuit. I am doing everything I can. And and you need to lay off the clutch. And that just wasn't acceptable to him, you know? And uh, and so we got into it a few times and but um no, I lived I lived uh, in an apartment like five minutes from his house and we spent new year's eve together building a bike in the garage we spent christmas day building a bike in the garage we spent nick and i spent so much time together it was ridiculous you know what i mean like that was that was it so we're good friends he's got a great family it's just you're right i mean i'm not a bro with him but we text every now and then and we call and like you know i mean whatever so, well, it's got it's got to be
0: hard. I mean, you you got to be critical of him, you know, especially now as, his his result, his results aren't as good as he wants them to be or anyone who's a fan of him wants them to be and you you've had to write some things about him like with the tie Lube deal and I thought he might have been pretty pissed about that.
1: Well, what did I do? I don't remember. Well,
0: yeah, well you you did you did have to kind of write about him with the uh the tie deal and him going to the factory team and kind of leaving them in the dust and whatever. So I thought he might've, I thought he might've been angry about that.
1: Nah, he was good. He was fine about that. He, he'll call me, he'll text me every now and then with, are you serious? And I'll be like, Uh that's all he'll say. Are you serious? And I'll write, I'll write Uh what? And he'll, then he'll repeat what I wrote and I'll be like, well, maybe I was wrong or whatever, you know? So, um, now he's a good guy, but, I just got along with Timmy better. I mean, I did get along with him better. And maybe it's because we don't hang out that much, as much as Nick and I. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Uh, I lived at Nick's house all summer in Michigan every day, practice track. You know what I mean? Every day, drive to the races. So there was a lot of time spent with him and I. So maybe that was part of it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, anyways. Very vouchers for
0: you at Yamaha. Very
1: vouches for me at Yamaha. And uh, that was it. I drove back to California. And got the job at Factory Yamaha and uh, worked there for three years with, with Reunited with Red Dog. We had a great 03 season. I think 11 podiums altogether in both series in 20 something races. Uh, let's see, 17 and 12. So 29 races, 11 podiums. Um, had a good year. And, and, and then uh, the next year, he was riding super good. I remember going to his house. He, he, he switched back to a two stroke for the, for the Supercross series for 04. And I went to his house, and he did three 20-lappers, and every lap time was within a second of each other. He, he just was on it. He did 60 laps in a day. And uh, uh, he was riding really good. First race, uh, Team Yamaha swept the podium. I, I was not the mechanic of record because uh, my INS visa had been declined, <laughs> and I was waiting to get a new work visa so that Yamaha couldn't have me working there. So I wasn't the mechanic of record anymore. I had to take, like, three races off while I got, <laughs> while I got settled and eventually got married. Um, so he got second or third the first race. The next race, he was the fastest guy in both practices, and he finished fifth on the night coming from behind. And the third race, he fell and broke his wrist, and it was never never the same again. Uh, the rest of 004, he struggled. He came back, missed some races, came back, missed some races, 04 was a write-off. 05, wrist was still bothering him. He was literally a 10th to 20th place guy in Supercross. And in the Nationals, before the season started, he tore up his knee. He tried to ride. And at Bud's Creek, John, Bud's Creek again, mm-hmm. he, Best that, track in the world. <laughs> he packed it in at Bud's Creek that year because uh, his knee was was jacked up. His wrist was still not fixed. And, you know, it didn't look good for him. It looked like he was going to be done, literally retiring, done. You know, everybody wrote him off. And, so my years at Yamaha, I think I look back as more frustration than, than uh, joy because those last two years, man, I mean, we, we probably only did half the races and at the half of the ones that he did, he sucked, you know. Uh, I, our friendship was good. Um, I was learning a lot. I was working on Reed's practice bikes and Villeman's practice bikes and, and test bikes and all that stuff. But, uh, um, you know, it was, it was a miserable time for me. I didn't like the structure at Yamaha. I didn't, uh-huh. I didn't like having to work seven thirty in the morning till five or six at night every night. Um, you know, a lot of the was it just was it just too corporate? I mean, you had to be there. And yeah, you just, just had to be there. Yeah, or? they just structure their they structure their thing differently at Yamaha. Um, everybody else is a kind of a contract employee at Yamaha. You're an employee, and you need to be there like every other employee, just like the guy that you know gets submits warranty claims for for blasters. You know what I mean? You had right. to do all that. So. Um, it was it was just like they just treated the racing mechanics like normal employees. But yet on the weekends when everybody went and hung out and barbecued, we were in, you know, all over the country racing. So uh right. it was a lot of work and you know, like I said, that the the payoff for me as a mechanic, because I think I'm an ex racer, I really enjoyed doing well at the races. I really felt I got emotional out there. I felt like it was my guy, and I felt like those were my results as much as the riders and the the doing well at the races meant all was well. So, Mm. but then consequently, when you didn't race and, or your guy sucked, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. You know, it just got to be not fun. And I was going to leave Yamaha at one point. Timmy asked me to stay for another year. And uh, I got a little bit more money out of Yamaha because we we weren't paid very well compared to other factory mechanics. And, Uh. I got a little bit of extra money. That didn't make much difference. But so I toughed it out another year. But uh, once Timmy was let go at the end of 05, they said to me, hey, we're going to keep you. Uh, you're going to work for Heath Voss. Uh, mm. Reed was going to San Manuel. No, Reed was staying on. It was Reed and Voss. And uh, you're going to work for Voss. And I was like, yeah, exit stage left for me. Nothing against Heath, but he's a little bit out there. And, right. and I didn't want to work at a job that I didn't like for a guy that I didn't feel as passionate for like I did with Ferry, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of kind of where it went.
0: For, for me, in my head, and you've touched on this lightly before, I always felt that Yamaha and Honda were always the two factory teams that were kind of in the dick measuring contest. Who was it that always had the extra inch on the other guy? Who always made the first move? Who was always jealous of the other team
1: you know? oh, well i mean honda was where it's at they i mean they killed us you know right you know i mean it's just definitely uh yeah they 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 uh they killed us they had magnesium carburetors they had bikes that were aluminum frames they had bikes that were on the weight limit uh you know ours were probably uh, our outdoor bikes were probably i don't know eight pounds over the limit you know um, Honda was way tricker than us, always, always way tricker than us. Um, so, yeah, I and mean, there- were you
0: guys just patting your heads into the wall like, fuck, they got this now, god damn it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was. it is what it was. You, it, it is what it is. We, we didn't know much about it. But, you know, you, you knew their bikes were lighter. You knew their bikes were good. Their aluminum. I mean, they had just their aluminum frame compared to our steel frame. You know, we were, like, on the Titanic, and they were, like, on a cigarette boat. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. just their bikes were better, and they had cooler parts, and – Carmichael was winning, and, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I know, they had more staff. Every factory team had more staff than we did at Yamaha. You know, we would look over, like rookie Darren, Darren uh, Sorensen, Reed's mechanic, I mean, he was, he was working his balls off. I mean, Timmy was injured, so, you know, it wasn't that bad for me. But with a guy like Reed, practice bikes in Florida, practice bikes in California, testing, racing. Uh, You know, there's no help for him. I mean, I was doing a little bit here and there and all that. But, you know, a guy like Goose would have a helper every race. And four-stroke motors, we were the only mechanics doing our motors still um, every week. Mm -hmm. We were the only mechanics changing tires at the races. Every other team would let, you know, Dunlop or Bridgestone change their tires for them. So being a factory Yamaha mechanic uh, sounds good. But there was a lot of things that we did that other teams didn't do with a lot less people. So, um, it was, you know, I still look back at, uh, at, uh, rookie Reed's mechanic and wonder how in the hell he survived, you know, um, trying to make Chad happy and, 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 you know, a rider of that caliber.
0: Right. Did you guys have any, do you have any good spy stories of, of you trying to copy something or, you know, look at something someone did Um, on the fly or or anything like that and make your own?
1: No, not really. You know, uh, one year I was, Timmy was hurt again. And the, uh, the team manager, Jimmy Perry, came to me and said, uh, he said, what, what should we do to our bikes, Mathis? What are you And I mean, I, trust me, I'm an idiot. But whatever, I, was, I was, must have been the only guy around, or he must have been drunk or high. But he's like, what? <laughs> you work for PJ1, what would you do? Yeah, what, what would you do to our bikes, Mathis? <laughs> and, I mean, I knew our bikes were, our, our bikes were uh, heavy. And I know Timmy's 426 was a three-speed. So I said to Jimmy, I'm like, well, we gotta get these things lighter, and we gotta make them turn better. So, I say let's make a three-speed, and let's uh, let's lower the radiators to try to make the, get these things to turn. Because <clears throat> you'd be surprised lowering the radiators and moving the motor mounts and dropping the motor a little bit make a difference. They all they all make a big difference to, to guys at this level. So mm-hmm. that was it. So we did that. We, I was cool. I was I was I was right there working on all that figuring out you know, uh, the weight differences, figuring out how to lower a radiator with some help and with lots of machine guys, but turns out then Dr. D copied our thing that we use on our race bikes to sell after, shortly after, you know, but, um, yeah. you know, I was cool, I was kind of on the cutting edge of that, and Supermoto was starting to get really big, and we had Mark Burkhardt and Doug Henry, and so with Timmy Hurt, <clears throat> I was Supermoto guy, and I was widening swing arms, and I was I was spending all day on the dyno, I remember spending four or five days straight eight to ten hours in the dyno room uh with just pistons and cams and heads and pipes and carburetors and air boots and mccarty keith mccarty was just like try everything you know and print me out every dyno chart of what you've tried and what you did and i just spent all those hours on the dyno and just you know matched carburetors this carburetor with this head and these cams and and then, okay, this carburetor with this boot and this camp. You know what I mean? Like, so I learned a lot. I learned a ton um, while I was there. And I spent a lot of time on the dyno and a lot of time sort of engineering stuff and tinkering with stuff. And, and it was really cool, that aspect. I loved doing that kind of stuff. But the uh, the whole, you know, hey, uh, Mathis uh, split these cases and, you know, refresh all the bearings and, and, and go put new gears in the transmission and rebuild the motor, I was just bored. You know, it was just... Not that I'm super smart, like I said, I'm an idiot, but it just got to be monotonous, you know? So the time I spent in the dino room was super cool and awesome, but it didn't happen all the time. Mm -hmm. Now,
0: I called in to the Pulp Show one time, and I asked this question. I asked, what was the most cheese ball, duct tape, and zip tie story that you have had in your career? You didn't really have one for me, but you did tell me at Factory Yamaha they once sent you out for duct tape, to go purchase at Walmart, what was that for?
1: I don't remember telling you that story. Really? It happened. Well, we had no, but we had special duct tape from Japan. It was like forty <laughs> bucks a roll. It was super good uh-huh. duct tape. So I don't know why I would have said that to you.
0: <clears throat> okay. Um, well, I you remember have a good story, uh, 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 something that the fans would be surprised to, to hear of, like you know, a factory team would holy shit, I can't believe they had to duct tape that because they didn't have anything else or they had to zip tie um, that. Or, not really, yeah. but
1: one time one time, a mechanic on the team uh, stripped out an oil line bolt really bad at the races. And uh, there was aluminum everywhere um, from trying to get this bolt in. It wasn't me, I swear to God. But um, it was, what happened? I, I don't know what, what the deal was, but Bob Oliver, who's still at Yamaha today and is a great guy and a super smart, genius dude. I'll never forget this. I'm like, oh my God, Bob, we got to split the cases because there's aluminum everywhere. It's going to get in the motor and, you know, there's chips, aluminum chips everywhere. And Bob goes, no, you don't have to. Watch this. So what he did, he he got a ton of red grease and he packed the hole with grease, grease, grease. He just kept packing grease in there like crazy down into the oil line spigot you know into where the uh-huh. oil goes and i'm like what is he doing he just packed grease pack grease pack grease push 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 then he goes and gets a shop vac and he vacuums all the grease back out and all the chips meanwhile had stuck to the grease right uh-huh. so he just vacuumed the grease out and was like there you go and it worked
0: <laughs> It was amazing
1: and i remember thinking to myself if only these fans knew what we were doing right now, they're probably like, what is going on? some sort of top secret, um, you know, vacuum modification. And that's what it was. And it's just funny. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I figured there had to be some story that, you know, us fans could relate to who are on a shoestring budget. We don't have all the resources and we have to, bullshit like that to make stuff work you know yeah, so no, i figured was, i figured there would be something that you guys have done that would go I, I do that i can't believe they had to do that
1: yeah no there's there's stuff all the time i mean i wasn't looking back on it i mean i was a very average mechanic i was nothing no rocket scientist you know what i mean nothing like that and i know how the motors work and i got general philosophies and what works and what doesn't but there's so many dudes that are smarter than me but so i used to think to myself like you know, I can't believe I'm a factory yeah, I'm a mechanic. I just can't believe it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just incredible that these idiots hired me. Oh, God, I can't believe yeah. it. So, you know, I always kind of kept an open mind and tried to tried to learn it. And, and, you know, but at the same time, I, you know, I just never really felt like I, you know, was the smartest dude in the room. It was sort of just because I knew Tim Ferry, you know?
0: Right. Well, so. it seems like <laughs> that's the theme for most of your mechanic career is, I knew this guy. He got me here. I knew this yeah, guy. I know. He got well, me here.
1: Think about hey, which dude, is
0: just, I guess, life, right?
1: Right. Think about. Like, I got a, I got a buddy who's uh, a dry, in, in fireman guy. He's a Louis in a fire fireman, uh, in a fire hall or whatever. He drives a truck. He couldn't get on the fire department. Couldn't get on. Couldn't get Couldn't get on. This was years ago. Twenty years ago. Fifteen years ago. He married uh-huh. the chief's daughter. He met the, right. ch- the fire chief's daughter. He married her. Uh, he got on the fire department right away after that. Right, you know what I mean? It's just like all who you know, right? And and luckily, I mean, you gotta still your performance is, uh, uh, as as whatever you do has, a, has to be okay. But life's all about that, you know. And that's what's hard to tell these dudes who email me looking looking for a job. Like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. You just, just gotta make it happen. You gotta meet these dudes. I mean, you know, I had my brother come down with me one time. I think F M F Honda days. My brother comes down from Canada to hang out with his younger brother, who's this f- superstar mechanic. And at the end of, like, a week, he's like, I could never do what you do because oh. I'm sleeping on a floor. I'm working 12 hours, 15 hours a day. Um, you know, I'm traveling everywhere. I, he's just like, I could never do that. And so, you know, how do you tell somebody in email, hey, it's, it's really who you know, and then it's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of things. I can't t- – I had no physical address for two or three years. I lived in gear bags. I had all my belongings in a gear bag. And uh, and I would do laundry man, I would sleep in sh- truck stops, and I would shower at truck stops, and I would sleep in the off-season, I would sleep at a guy's house for a month until I noticed he got tired of me, and then I would move on. Um, you know what I mean? So, like, these are all things that I think a lot of people wouldn't do. That's right. All. They just wouldn't do it. They're just like, no, no, I want to go home every night, I want to watch, you know, CSI every night, and... Whatever. So uh, it's hard to say to these people, you just got to really want it, man. You just really got to want it.
0: Right, right. Well, and like you said, it's, it's all on who you know, but those guys that you knew wouldn't say, hey, I know this guy if you were a shitbag. Right, you exactly. Know, there's lots of guys no. I know that I wouldn't recommend for shit. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: They're going to make me look like an asshole.
1: Yeah, you gotta somewhat hold it together, right? So, right, um, so,
0: so, yeah, yeah I, you, you maybe felt like you should have been a factory Yamaha mechanic, but you know what? Someone put you there because
1: yeah, 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 no, they, someone they put me you there it. And then, so, and you know what? Half
0: the guys on the team were probably thinking the same shit too. I when, shouldn't be here right now. Right, and then when the spotlight
1: <laughs> comes up, I somehow performed. You know what I mean? I somehow managed to do the job. So, right, uh, yeah,
0: right. All right, so '07, you're done. You, you, no, you kind of uh, 06, at the end
1: of 05, I'm done, the end of 05, I'm done.
0: Oh, of 05, okay, <coughs> and you get a part-time unlimited gig.
1: Yeah, I, uh, my buddy Lou Lopez, <laughs> again, with the buddy, right, I, yeah. uh, I called him, I said, what, I want to get out of this mechanicing thing, what, what do I got to do, what can I do, and he was like, uh, well, he's like, uh, you know, we're hiring to do these different jobs, and I think you'd be really good with your mechanical background, and you know you're a personable guy, and I used to live with Lou in the Chaparral days when he was the Sunstar sprocket guy. So, mm. <clears throat> again with the with the connections, right? So, mm. Lou gets me an interview with Parts Unlimited in Wisconsin, and they hire me to be the FMF brand manager for the year. Um, <clears throat> for 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 Well, not for a year, but for longer. But <clears throat> uh, so basically, it was really weird though. Like I quit, <clears throat> I quit Yamaha right around Thanksgiving, and I feel bad because I definitely strung them on a little bit while trying to get another job, you know, but at the same time, they had a mechanic, Craig Monty, Villeman's mechanic, he quit right before Daytona Supercross, so I didn't feel too bad, but they thought I was going to work for Voss. I was trying to get out of there. I finally got the job with Parts Unlimited, and this was like middle of November. I put in my two weeks at Yamaha. I leave around Thanksgiving, and Parts Unlimited says to me, they're like, hey, It's really slow right now for dealer sales, Christmas, holidays, you know. Wait till January before you hit the road. And I'm like, okay, now it's it's November 20th. They're like, yeah, that's fine. No problem. Just stay home. And I'm like, what? You're going to pay me? Very bizarre. Um, From a guy who was just used to go, 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 you know. So, yeah, I basically represented FMF, four parts unlimited. I traveled to all the races, most of them anyways um hung out did the parts unlimited showcases on friday which were dealers would come and see the product i would set the product up i would i would tell them all about exhaust i would visit dealers during the week um in the local area where the race was and then i would travel with the reps and um it was an enjoyable time it was a lot of travel though it was a lot of travel um but and i was back with fmf selling their product the only problem with that was there's a lot of distributors for fmf so and Parts Unlimited was a little bit more money, and they, and they were a little inflexible on their terms. So a lot of times I would go into a dealer, educate them all about FMF exhausts, and as soon as I leave, they would buy it from another distributor, you know, because they got better uh-huh. terms or they were happier with this guy or whatever. So it was a frustrating process at times. Um, I didn't feel like I was selling enough, you know, uh, and it wasn't all my fault. So it was a little frustrating right. sometimes. But it was a good job. I mean, but I started getting into writing again, you know. Uh, when I worked for Nick Way he had a website and you can still find it on the internet. My writing is still in there. Um,
0: right. Uh,
1: I started writing things down and, uh, I've always been into it. So I started writing more and more and racer X Canada started up and those guys were pumped to have me. Like I had talked to Don Maeda at Transworld, and I talked to Davey Coombs and Davey was like, send me something. And, Maeda was like, hey, I'll send me something, but, like, nothing ever became of it. Like, I did send them something, and it probably sucked balls, so they didn't run it. But the Race right. Canada guys were more than happy to have me write part-time for them about the U.S. Mm-hmm. Series. So I just started with that, and, you know, it started getting more and more popular. I started getting better at it, and I was still doing the Parts Unlimited thing, and eventually the Parts Unlimited thing, um, FMF decided they didn't want to do it anymore. It was a co a, a, co- a, a a co-venture between Parts Unlimited and FMF, where my salary was split in half and my expenses were split. And FMF decided they didn't want to do it. Parts Unlimited came to me and said, "Hey, you, we have an opening for uh, Cobra Street Exhaust, which is like Harley Davidson and stuff." And yeah. I just said, "I'm out. I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to uh. do that um, anymore." I said, "Can I, can I do the Moose job?" And they were like, "No." And I said, "Okay, uh, all right, I'm done." And uh, I started getting into writing more and more. And that was it. You know, I started doing podcasting. I was all into that. And uh, luckily, you know, I kind of started that in the motor world. You know, I, find, I found my little niche and uh, got better and better at it, I guess, and, and started getting better at writing and, you know, t- giving my take on things. And I've always been a little outspoken. And uh, I read a lot. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of magazines. And I, somehow I held it together enough that people started paying me to, uh, more and more to, uh, to write things.
0: Right. Is this is this where you always thought you'd be? Uh, uh, did you always think, hey, you know, maybe I'm going to get paid for writing stuff down, or did you just um, kind of end up here? Did your interest change, or, or, when I, when or I was, did you uh, realize this is more you to be a writer, this is what I'm going to do now?
1: Uh, when I was a mechanic, I would read the magazines and the Internet when it was kind of coming out, and I'd be like, these guys are idiots. They don't know what's going on. Like, not oh. everybody, but a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? And I'd be like, these guys, they have it wrong. That's not what happened. That's not what went down. So I was like, man, you know, I could do a better job than that. You know what I mean? And uh, But whatever, never really thought much about it. But then, you know, I'm just such a fan. That's really what I, I mean. I really am. I'm, I'm a fan of the sport and the history. And, and so when I started doing stuff with Race Race Canada, I was, like, I was like, you know what I mean? I can just call Ron Lachine up and say I'm interviewing him. Like, I'd just like to talk to Ron Lachine. You know what I mean? Like, right. never mind for a magazine. It'd just be cool to swap stories about Ron Lachine because I'm a fan. So I started getting more and more into it and, more, and you know, started thinking it was pretty cool. So I've always been into it, though. Uh, you know, even in high school, I took journalism in, in high school and stuff. And so I, I, I like telling stories. I used to be, when I was real young, I used to belong to a short story club. and I would write short stories, you know, about superheroes and stuff. Um, you know, so I... You need to find some
0: of those and post them.
1: I know, right? I used to have a typewriter, I got a typewriter for Christmas, and I'd just type out stories, and, I, I, God, I could just imagine what they were like. But it goes to show you that even when I was 10 years old, I was typing stories, you know, about superheroes. So clearly there's something there for me as far as typing, you know, there's some sort of uh, background or whatever. Um, so, yeah, uh, good times uh, doing that, and then eventually people started liking what I did, and I started to be able to make a living from it. But, no, when I was a mechanic... I never thought I could make a living as a media guy. Like it's and it still is tough, man. I'm making am making a living, but it's tough. Like you know, there's there's not too many people who, who do it for a living. There, you know, you think uh, you think there's a ton of people, but guys actually making a living at it, I would say there's ten to fifteen guys in the country. You know, um, right. who do what I do. So yeah. it's not easy.
0: I would say that, you know, from the outside looking in,
1: it looks like you love your job because,
0: you know, you do a good job at it. But do you ever feel like, hey, this is this is all I know? This is all I can do now? I mean, yeah, what else I mean, could you do?
1: Yeah, exactly. I can't fight fires like you. Well. Or, I can't rescue cats. <laughs> I can't rescue cats from trees.
0: There's, there's, you never see a cat skeleton in a tree, Steve. I've never seen one before. Yeah, you that If before. someone called and said to pull my cat out of the tree, I'd say, uh, you know, find somebody else, get the cop to right. shoot it off. Cause um, I'm not getting it.
1: Um, yeah, no, absolutely. This is, this is kind of what I know. And you know, I think I know a lot about it. I think I'm educated. I think I'm smart about it, but you know, only about my little world of motocross, you know? And, uh, I mean, I love hockey and stuff. I'd love to be, you know, a rider in hockey or or something like that, follow that kind of sport, but I just I got no connections like I do. I mean, part of what makes me good at what I do is because I I was on the inside. No one else in the media has that kind of access that knows what goes on day in and day out at the test tracks and what the riders talk about and what the teams talk about. And I can call anybody up, just about anybody but Hanny. And, you know, and, and, and have some credibility when I'm talking to them. You know, they may think I'm a bit of an idiot here and there, but at the bottom line is, is I'm not an idiot. I, I, I've been on the inside, and I think that's what people like.
0: Right. yeah, that, that's, I think that is. You're right. But, and, and you touched on my next question, which, say, going back to 96, when you had to make a choice, you know, what am I going to do? This is what I want to do. I want to be a mechanic. What if you would have made the choice that 99% of us do and go, i got to go find a real job. What would you have done? And don't say hockey because yeah, you know that would have been another tough job. And I hate when someone asks a, an athlete, "What would you have done?" And they they pick another professional sport. Yeah, exactly. That's not the point of the question. I would have won Wimbledon. To know what common man job you would have done to make you more human? So, so what would you have done, dude?
1: I have no clue. I I don't know what I I left home when I was twenty two years old. I was still trying to find myself. I had no degree, no schooling outside of high school. I don't know what I would have done. I mean, my mom bless her heart, she was telling me, you know, long haul truck drivers make a really good living, and I'm like, this is really what you want for your son? You want your son to be a long haul truck driver? Really? Like, why don't you say doctor or something? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not bagging on long haul truck driving, but because <clears throat> it does make good money, and it is a good living, but I always thought, like, shouldn't I, shouldn't a mom shoot a little higher for her son? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, she, she, yeah. So I honestly don't know. Maybe I would have been a truck driver. Maybe I would have, I, I have no idea. I don't know. You know, all I know is hey. that like <clears throat> my whole life, even when I was a kid, I was, uh, I was racing motocross at a high level. I was going to California and Florida when no one else was, you know, as a kid, missing school, getting pulled out of school. Uh, cause my dad thought it was important. My whole life, I felt like I've never done anything by the book you know what i mean like i got buddies that graduated high school and they went straight into university for and that's called college in canada university and uh, went and got a degree uh in arts and science and then they went and did their teaching degree and now they're teachers and that's sort of how and then they got married and then they had kids you know what i mean that's how people are supposed to do it i've never done anything normal i've always been a little different from the from everybody else, like as far as, hey, where's Mathis? Uh, he's in Florida riding. He's in California riding. You know what I mean? Um, He's racing this weekend. He's traveling all over Canada racing, and he's down south racing. And, and uh, it's just so, to me, having an offbeat career or job, I think is kind of what I was meant to be. I kind of was meant to have it. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Someone's got to do – The random things in the world
1: well I just never felt like I uh I could do the teaching job or anything if I'm if I'm not in flux I'm not I'm not I don't know you know just this this doesn't make a lot of sense I know it may not but whatever okay
0: well you're a pretty busy guy so what, what is in all the randomness of what you do you have your hand in everything what is the most common day for you? I mean how much time are you spending a day dealing with motocross and typing out what you saw dur- during the week and on the weekend and ha- how much time do you have to spend sitting in front of your computer on the phone with dum dums like me doing this
1: um uh a lot i mean you don't get a you don't get a physique like I do by not sitting in front of the computer you know <laughs> uh right um you know, but um, I don't know. It depends. It, it, it's, uh, the show is, you know, three or four hours, and it's a couple, two or three hours of prep for each show. And that's a lot of my Monday. I start observations on Monday. I finish observations on Tuesday. I do my RacerX stuff during the week. I got Italian freelance work. I, for example, I got to call Dave Prater tomorrow to interview him and DeCoster as well. Um, it seems like I work a ton. Like my wife is saying I work too much and maybe so, but, um, um, you know, I I don't know. It doesn't feel like all like work for me. You know what I mean? I wake up, I'm in my house, I work out of my house. Uh, you know, I take a break here and there to pet a, pet a dog, scratch a dog, take him out for a walk. So I don't, I don't know. It's a lot of time. I work a lot, but it doesn't seem like it. You know, at Yamaha I worked a lot and and trust me, it seemed like it, you know? So no, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have, I'm lucky to do what I do. And, um, you know I, I think uh I think people uh you can see it in my work that 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 I feel like I'm lucky, you know what I mean that I feel like I appreciate what I do so
0: mm. right now, going to maybe the the harder part of your job uh when you have to be critical of somebody um most of the time it seems like people understand that that's your job. <laughs> Um, and maybe you're lucky to get a writer that looks at himself and goes, yeah, he's right. Maybe <sighs> mm-hmm. you know, maybe he saw something that I need to fix on myself, but yeah. occasionally you run into a guy that reads something you write, and he says, yeah, that's bullshit. He's making me look bad. He's making me look bad, and now sponsors don't want to look at me, and he's he's hurting my, my wallet because he's writing bad things about me. So then they decide they don't want to talk to you. But yeah. in them saying – okay, I don't want to talk to this guy. They're acting like it's not going to hurt their career by also not talking to you. But it's also contradicting themselves because the reason they're mad at you is because you wrote something that people read. You know, So it's like, are writers going to realize maybe it's hurting them to not talk to you, to not maybe face their accuser? And, and if, if you wrote something that they feel is wrong, go to you and, and make an interview of it and, and yeah. say something.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's, it's really unprofessional. Um, you know, it's unprofessional in this, uh, in this, to do that in this, um, as a professional dirt bike racer. It's just not the way to do it. You know, Kevin Windham, I wrote something about Kevin Windham uh, last year. And he, um, he came up to me at Steel City and said, you know, you write some real douchey things. And I'm like, huh? And he told me what I wrote, but it turns out he didn't read it. Someone told him. And so I go, that's not what I wrote, Kate up. This is what I wrote. And I said, I'll pull it up for you right now in the press tent and show you what I wrote. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. And, and, and so we talked about it, and I said, this is why I wrote that, and this is what I said, and this is why I th- what I think. And, and <clears throat> you know, it was something to the effect of Kevin Wyndham will never win a, t- a championship. And I said I did say that, Kevin. But this is what I said after that, you know. Um, I didn't say win, not win races, and so whatever. So he he must have went and looked. He comes up to me like two hours later and goes, "Hey, dude, I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I you know I should, I didn't read it." And that was a perfect interaction between a rider and a media guy. I've had some guys come up to me and say stuff, and I've been like, "Hey, dude, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know whatever you're telling me right now." let me write that again next week and talk about it and sometimes right. they say yes or sometimes they say f you you know you don't you don't know no and i go okay well you're only hurting yourself so um you know i think i think before i started writing and why this is Wygant's theory this isn't my theory Wygant's theory is when i started doing it it was so weird for the media to criticize these writers and and point out good things i my my writing style had never been done in moto media. It had been done all over the place for, for stick and ball stuff. And so people had a hard time getting used to it. But now I'm five years in or whatever, and people like it, and they realize what it is, and they accept it for what it's for, and the complaints are, you know, not there anymore from anybody. And I've probably gotten a little softer. I'm not as harsh as I once was. I realize these guys have feelings. Maybe I've, I've, I've been able to learn how to criticize a little better too. You know, uh, but uh, no, you you have a point. The guys are only hurting themselves and and it's happened a lot, and i I can be wrong as as much as the next guy. I'm paid to give my opinion, an educated opinion, um, but I could be wrong. I've admitted it, I've wrote it, you know, and but like I said, that Wyndham thing was a perfect example of how it should work. right well, and
0: then what what hurts the writer more? You writing something critical of them or their reaction to it?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Public. Yeah, exactly. No, for sure. And the Henny thing's almost like taking on a bit of a legendary turn. You know what I mean? Like, at this point, he, he, I, he said shit about me that I've been like, okay, all right. Then I've said shit back. And we don't remember even who said what or whatever. I, having said that, I would interview him tomorrow. I would have him on the show tomorrow. I'm perfectly fine with it. Um, but, I mean, I don't like some of the stuff that he said in public about me. And, and, you know, whatever. I've had, tried to have fun with it. The whole thing came because right. he got fired from JGR. And right. I wrote a critical story about him that 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 Bones Bacon, who is now his suspension guy, came up to me and said, hey, loved your story. Really thought you right. hit hit your nail on the head. Brock Glover from Dunlop came up to me and said, I love that story. I really thought it was good. Because... You know, I'd spoken to Jeremy Albrecht, I'd spoken to Coy Gibbs, and they told me Hanny was lying to them about riding and he was doing his stuff off the track and he was being a complete idiot. His results weren't there and they had to fire. Him. So, right. you know, I said this was Haney's last chance to have a good ride and he blew it and he took all his talent and he blew it. And I, and I didn't write it in that story, but I wrote it later on that he's probably going to get picked up by a pro circuit for no money and win a championship because that's what Mitch does. And I was proven right. right. I hasn't won the championship yet, but I got, I got proved right on the other part of it. You know, Mitch is the only guy that could hire Hanny and somehow turn it into a right. And the guy is almost screwing that right up. But anyways, regardless right. of that, um, yeah, I mean, it only, you know, and he called me up. Hanny called me up and said, uh, you know, I want to fight you, and uh, I know where you are, and I'm going to fight you the next time I see you. And you made my grandpa cry, and I remember you. You're fat, and I want to fight you. And I'm like, great, all right. I mean, that's how you, that's how you discuss things. Then I guess we got to fight, you know? Right. Um, eventually, I was just like, okay, dude, I'll meet you at the track because we're gonna fight. I apparently, I can't talk to you. He was almost irate, you know. So, I I'm with you, dude. It if if I write something that's not accurate, that's critical, and isn't correct, please call me email me and let's let's figure this out you know let's let's exchange information and figure out what i don't know you know
0: right Yeah. So. If, if the respectful thing to do is if that happens go talk to the guy that said it you know and go go fix it and you know what if you can't talk to him and fix it then guess what the guy who said something about you is right well and, and also to too, yourself
1: and also too, be a be a fucking professional you're Right. You, you're you're a professional athlete, getting paid money. You're in the you're in the you're in the public eye. Uh, criticism is to be expected along with praise, because you're a professional athlete. This is how it works. Understand this, realize this, be a professional, and handle your business the right way. It's hard to do with young kids, you know. It's hard to do with all these young guys, but that's the way it works. That's the way the system works. I'm not gonna go to a race and not write something if I see something wrong because that's not what I get paid for. You know, right. I have people who like reading my stuff. I have people who pay me because they like the fact that I can call a spade a spade.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on hand. I, I, I'm surprised that he is like that with you because he's gone on DMXS before. He's he's blamed himself for all the shit that's happened to him, I, and I thought he was, he was a yes. man about it. So Thank it's you. the one thing I'm, I think he's not being a man about. And and, you know, I think I I come from a job. I know some men. I know some guys that I would not say some shit to. But if I did, (laughs) I know they would come up to me and set me straight. And those are guys I respect. Yeah. That you know, and and I just wish he would do that because I think he's got it in him. No. But I think he's a little stubborn with
1: you. And all the stuff I wrote about in that Cycle News article and 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 the stuff I wrote about him going to pro circuit have been true. And he's admitted it, and he said it, and I've been proven right. And he's just, he's just too proud to, to, to accept that, you know, and that's okay. Whatever. Hey, whatever. You know, I mean, I was in the pro circuit race shop eight months ago. Wow. Yeah. Before supercross hanging out bullshitting. And there he was behind me. And I'm like, what's up, Hanny? And he just goes and walks out. And I'm like to the guys, all the mechanics were laughing. And I go, I go, you know, I'm not the one he walked in here and then turned around and walked out. I'm glad to have him here. You know what I mean? So, whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't want, you know, years and years down the road, he does a podcast with the next Steve Mathis, and he sounds like your swing podcast where you're just like, nah. what happened to this guy? He's yeah. a shell of a dude. Yeah. This guy, you know, what happened? Yeah,
1: I, I think he's fixing himself. I think he's coming around. I just think he got back to being a little bit of an ego after winning so much, and he's getting money again, and he's, you know what I mean? It's just – He's not really learning his lesson, but I don't think he's going to end up like Swink.
0: Right. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's get back to you. Uh, we know you like to interview Donji, I mean, not Donji, Villapoto. We know you like to interview Reed because they give you a good interview. Is there a team? Teen- or a rider that you avoid, you don't have to name names, but is there a guy that you go, ah, oh, son of a bitch? This guy did good, and I got to try to talk to this guy, and he's not going to give me anything, or he no. hates me.
1: No, there's nobody. There's nobody. I mean, I would, I, I don't bother with Hanny. I don't bother asking Hanny. I just know he won't talk to me. You know what I mean? There's nobody. And Mitch has told me that he'll he'll get Hanny to do an interview with me and, and all that. There's nobody. I mean, even Davy Millsaps. He, Davey Millsaps does not like me, uh, but right. I like the JGR guys, and I'm there quite a bit, and. At Hangtown, I'm like, "Hey, dude!" Out of the blue, we made eye contact. I said, "Hey, dude, you rode really good today. Good job!" Like, I, and he goes, "Thanks, man." And I go, "What is it about this place? Because you've done good here before." He goes, "I don't, I don't like this place." And I go, "Well, you know, you did really good today." And he just goes, "Thanks." And I still don't think he probably really likes me, but he rode good, you know, and that's he deserved the praise that he got that he got for that. Right. Um,
0: well, and, you know, he probably should have took that praise better than he would have someone else because if you get praise from someone who you feel is critical of you at times, you know, right. it probably helps out a little more than, uh, you know, Mr. Positive who always tells you are doing good. Yeah, great.
1: let's face it. All these guys have dudes kissing their asses nonstop. All of them do. You know what I mean? Like, because they're either in it for financially or, or they they're, they're just want to be super fans or whatever. I mean, even media guys, there's a lot of media guys that are just like, yeah, dude, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I was like that with red dog, but I mean, let's face it. Red dog didn't do anything negative. I mean, if he didn't ride good, I wrote about it, you know, but he, he tried his hardest and he did what he could do. And he wasn't goofing off or being an idiot out on the track or nothing. The one time I did criticize him was a U.S. open uh, and his wife got really mad. I mean, we all laugh about it now. So, you know, I criticized Tim Ferry, for example, that, takes a lot of nuts He's great great friend of mine uh, you know how uh how
0: often do you know the story but you can't tell it due to the rider backlash or the team backlash or or is it as tight-lipped to you sometimes as it is to the fans like with the whole brooks story i mean do you not know it like i don't know it or do you know it and you can't tell it? Um, or I remember what Reardon disappeared a couple of years ago, and I don't think you could tell the story. How often does that happen where you just got to be quiet and, and pretend um, like you don't know?
1: Here's my rule for that. I don't remember anything but Reardon disappearing. I don't, did he have a problem? Uh, Stroop did. What,
0: wasn't he on the concepts? And then he just kind of disappeared. I remember he got hurt, but yeah, then yeah, no, they fired and came him. back. Yeah, they just fired him. Right? Yeah, they fired him. Okay. Yeah, but you couldn't tell why, right? Or no, yeah. one, no one knew why they fired him. No,
1: well, I wrote – yeah, because the team never – our sport is so cheeseball sometimes that they didn't even tell anybody. They're just like, he's not here. And I'm like, what's wrong? He's not here. And I'd be like, okay. Eventually I asked Chisholm. And I'm like, what's up with Reardon? And he's like, dude, I think he got fired. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's how cheeseball our sport is. Here's the rule I go with that. If I ask Larry Brooks what happened to him and he goes – And he tells me. But he says, hey, don't write it. I won't write it. I'll I'll respect that. If I ask John from Baltimore what happened to Larry Brooks, and you know Larry Brooks, and you say, hey, I think I heard this, and I heard this, and I heard that, and then I go, okay. Then I make another phone call to maybe somebody, another guy, and I ask him, and I'll do some digging around. And then (laughs) I'll put something out there as a rumor because I didn't get it from the, the source, Larry Brooks, you know. Um, I feel like that's okay because I've done a little bit of homework. I've done a little bit of Sherlock Holmesing on on the story, you know. Um, but if the person tells me directly and then says, hey, don't write it, I'll say, can I write that? No, then I can't write it. You know, relationships are too important to uh, to screw them over like that. So that's sort of my rule of thumb.
0: <laughs> right. Okay, so... With that being said, do you know the Brooks story? You just can't tell it, or you don't know it?
1: I don't know it. I really don't. Uh, he got canned. He's not spending time with his family. Right. I heard okay. I heard from their side what he was doing, and then I heard from Larry what he was really doing, and there's obviously three sides to every story. I don't know what is true, what's not. Um, you know, James won't talk about it. Nobody on the record on that team will talk about it. So, and Larry's not talking on the record, but I'll be like, Hey, Larry, someone told me that this is what you were doing. And this is maybe why one of the reasons why James didn't like you. And he'll just be like, no, that's not true. Mathis. Here's what happened. You know what I mean? And, but I don't know the whole story. No, I really don't. Um, but hopefully soon I've got a little, a little something brewing in the oven where we may hear something from Larry Brooks. Cross um, my finger that he of, doesn't
0: lot of, A lot of eager people wait yeah, to hear him hopefully Cross my finger that he doesn't Before people forget about it
1: Yeah cross my finger that he doesn't go back into his shell that He's like a groundhog day who sees his shadow And he goes back into that hole Because I've, right. I've worked, worked and worked and worked To get him out of that hole With a little piece of cheese And hopefully he comes right. out and gets the cheese
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he's tweeting about other stuff, and I'm just like, hey, I really don't care about this right now until you go back and talk about that. Yeah. Then I'll listen to this.
1: Exactly. No, and I think Larry knows that, you know. I did right. tell him, I said, hey, if I pick up World Moto and see, you know, inside the story with Larry Brooks, I said, I will be pissed. If you're not talking to anybody and you don't want to talk about it, cool. No problem. But as friends, and, you know, you, you owe me that we need to talk about this at some point. And he goes, dude, I don't know if I'm going to. I said, Larry. He does owe you. You fire me. Exactly. I you said, Larry, I will, I will follow you around with a tape recorder, and you have to talk. You have to resurface, Brooks. And people are going to be there and wanting to know what happened, and you'd be best to put out that fire ASAP and control the fire, control the rumor, control the speculation by coming out and talking. And he understands that, I think, a little bit. So,
0: Right. Hey, that's uh, a uh, question let's, that uh,
1: let's let's wrap this thing up, most, dude. We're two hours in. i am I
0: supposed to answer? I'm going to ask you. Who do you root for? And if you can't say what what kind of guy do you root for? I mean, are you are no. you an underdog guy? Are you a brand loyal guy? Or who's your guy? We know your wife loves Poto. We know that. Yeah, we got, So who's your guy?
1: We got to wrap this up, dude. It's Two hours. Come on.
0: We're, hey. we're we're almost there. We're almost there.
1: Okay. I don't root for anybody. I root, I used to root for Tim Ferry. Okay. Uh, but I, don't, I honestly don't root for anybody. I really don't. I like what I like. I enjoy stories. So Chad Reed is a great story. Uh, guy had – he's on his fourth team in four years. Is that right? Yeah, fourth team – no. Yeah, Yamaha. My mind's going blank. Yamaha. Yeah, he's on his fourth team in fourth years. He's older. He's written off by, by any, everybody. He goes and starts his own team. Sinks his own money into it, starts off with a production bike, gets a works Honda, is now killing it. That is a great story. Um, and I'm into that. Uh, if he pulls it off, it's awesome. If Ryan Poto coming back from an injury is a great story. Um, um, Barack, Will Hahn coming back this weekend and doing well after being off since the second practice of the first race is a great story. You know what I mean? So that's all I'm into I'm into uh, looking at things and being inspired by guys against the odds, I guess.
0: All right. All right. I've got like four more questions for you. Biggest regret in your journalistic or mechanic career? What is
1: it? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Biggest regret? Um... (laughs) I don't know. There's got to be something that I wrote that I t- I want to take back, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head to be honest.
0: Okay, nothing you would go back and and change or you know what there is, you but
1: stayed somewhere longer no, or
0: gone to another team or
1: no. I had this question uh, a while ago from somebody, and I oh, you mean mechanicing career too, or just media anything? Career? Um, in my mechanicing career, I shouldn't have left KTM at the end of 01, I think I could have stayed there and, and, you know, had another secure job. But instead, I was like, you guys are idiots. I'm going to go work for Ryan Hughes. So I probably should have stayed.
0: Okay. All right. MX Sports, the whole team of um, MX Sports guys is on their way to Hanktown and their plane goes off and lands on some desert island. You got D.C., he's the professor, and you got Weege, he's... He's Gillian making the coconut bra, <laughs> and you are the only hope. You know, help us math this year the Nationals only hope. You have to run everything. What do you change? What do you keep?
1: Hmm. First of all, yeah, I hope hope we each survive. I really like Wiegam. Um, I I don't think I change anything, dude. I like the one-day format. I really like the one-day format. It sucks for my bottom line show because that thing had to go but um i love the one day format um yeah i you know what honestly i don't think i change anything i don't think i do anything i mean okay. i guess i guess i get rid of WMX. but <laughs> just because i don't find it it's i don't think it's doing what it was supposed to do supposed
0: to do right. and
1: i would love to see but you see, getting rid of them doesn't change anything. They're just there. They don't affect it, one way or another. Do you know what I mean? So maybe that's dickish to say that. But
0: yeah. Uh, well, you know what? You're probably right. It, it's not doing what it's supposed to do because I watch every weekend and I have no idea who's leading the points right now.
1: Not yeah. No. I just. It's just. It needs more competitiveness. It needs more balance. It needs. It needs a lot of things. But but having said that, you know, by ch- you know I'm not going to take them away. What, they don't really. They don't. To me, they don't add anything to the program, but they don't take anything away from the program either. You know what I mean? So, uh, no, I don't think I change anything. I like the one day format. I like uh, the glasses the, the way it is, and uh, yeah, I think it's good. All right, uh,
0: Kenny. He always defends his friends, right <laughs> or wrong. Doesn't matter who it is. You don't know what Doesn't he's matter how through. wrong they are. They're his buddies. He defends them to the end. Kenny's out at the Boom Boom Room. The guy next to him at the bar. Starts trashing you. Does that guy defend you?
1: Mm, I don't know. It's a good question. Good question. We'd have to ask Kenny that. Why don't you ask him on the show?
0: Um, I, I guess I could call and ask him, but I mean, it depends. Like
1: it depends you know, in on in
0: front of you. He's not defending you because you're 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 your own man. and yeah, You can do it. No. But um, when you're not there, is he doing it?
1: If Ivan Tedesco is trashing me. He goes, yeah, 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 because he's bros with Ivan and he's better friends with Ivan. But if some fan is trashing me, maybe he stands up for me. You know? I don't know. Right. He's a complicated man, that Kenny Watson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, that's that's why we love him. Uh, you're a stickler for the audio during your shows, during your podcasts. Please tell me you've changed your smoke detector battery because it has been chirping forever. No, randomly. It, no, it hasn't. Dude, I've been hearing it. It's been chirping. Maybe, maybe you changed it, or maybe it's no. your callers. I don't know. I, no. I, I know I hear a smoke detector chirping.
1: You don't? No. You're a fireman, and you're you hear those all the time. I, I swear to you, my smoke detector has not chirped. Not once during your show. Um, Dude, I'm, I'm I will to think, find
0: the audio, and I will. I please. Will, I will tell you where it is. Please it, find it. it. Please it find it. crazy.
1: Find find what you're listening to. Tell me what where what show what minute it's on, and I will tell you what it is. Um, it could be a number of things, but it is not a smoke detector. I kid you not. Now, Kenny's phone is on vibrate most of the time, and it, he puts it on a plastic table here next to me because we have a, my desk and then a plastic table set up for him. And sometimes it makes noise on that plastic table. And It goes, because it's vibrating, you know? But
0: No, No, I know that distinctive sound. It haunts me. All right, last question. Will you find what? it for
1: me? Will you find the audio for me? I'll, I'll
0: find it. Yep, I'll find it. I'll, I'll point you to it. All right, last question. What's the future for you? What's the future for the Pulp Show? There's, You, know, you guys joke about satellite. Um, do you really want to do that, or where, where, where are you going to take this?
1: I don't know, man. Take it to Baltimore.
0: Uh, you don't want to come here? Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: no, you know what? I don't know, man. The show is, um, you know, uh, I see a day where Watson just says he's over it. You know, he doesn't get paid probably enough for the time he puts in. I mean, we're all making money. Don't get me wrong. Everybody's making money. Um, So that's good. But I could see a time where Kenny is like, you know what, I'm over it. And maybe at that point, I don't feel like the show should go on anymore and maybe I'm over it. Um, But, I I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah, Satellite would be great, obviously. I mean, there's no money in Satellite. If you talk to anybody who has a show on Satellite, there's no money in it. Some better exposure would be would be good I guess I mean the show dude it's it's going good people love it it's the talk of the pits a lot of times and so I don't know we'll just keep doing it you know we got sponsors we got, we got sponsors coming to us who want to come on so why not keep doing it and keep rolling with it you know I think the only way that it would end is uh, if Kenny said I'm out and then you know I live in Vegas so it's super hard to get another guy and maybe I right. do it for a little while and then I realize you know what it's just not as good without a co-host. Um, maybe I moved to Southern California, um, and we do it in Southern California one time with, with, you know, Nick Way coming by every week or Pingree coming by every week. You know, maybe that maybe that happens. Who knows? I don't know. It's a good question, and I don't really have an answer for sure.
0: Yeah, I don't think if, if Kenny left, you probably would never find another Watson. And if you did, you yeah. wouldn't live in Vegas.
1: Right, exactly. It you, wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't. You, it wouldn't be the same show. It would be a much more serious um, show. Paul Lindsay show. Yeah, but hopefully better than that. Let's let's pray to God, Jesus, that it would be better right. than that. But uh, a, Does he hate you now, or no, are you no. guys cool? No, we're cool. We're fine. He's going to come on the show here coming up, um, and hopefully him and Kenny get into it again. That would be awesome. It, it just it just, uh, it just didn't work out with him, and I don't think he was pumped on it, and I, I know I wasn't pumped on it, and all of our preseason – meetings and talks and phone calls about it. it i never thought it would go that way and i you know, obviously didn't think he did either and so yeah you know shit happens but we're good
0: all right cool well steve i, I gotta say uh, thanks for doing doing this with me uh, we ran longer than we should have uh yeah um, dude who, who, who is uh, yeah no yeah uh who is gonna listen a to
1: a two hour and ten minute podcast seriously
0: dude people care about you they want to know what you're doing it was good. It was informational. It was great.
1: Well, hey, John, I'm sure uh, people will thank you for doing it. And uh, and I guess thanks for for, for, for for wanting to do it. I thought you were a little out there when you asked me to do it, but it was fun. And, and hopefully everybody gets an idea of what I went through to get to where I am now. And, and, you know, I mean, there's still a lot more to be told, funny stories and stuff, but we'll leave that for the show. And, um, yeah, man, uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Dude, thanks,
0: thanks, man. I appreciate it. See ya. See ya. you.